Today's episode is made possible by Northwestern University Press and their new, much-anticipated release, Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry by poet Nikki Finney. This minglement of poems, observations, fictions, and treasured artifacts is Finney's first book since Head Off and Split, winner of the National Book Award for Poetry. Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry is available wherever books are sold. Speaking of poetry, in celebration of Poetry Month this April, Tin House invites you to pause for poetry. Watch and listen on the Tin House social media channels as writers share some of their favorite poems in a minute or less at hashtag pause for poetry. Next up is my conversation with poet and fellow literary podcaster, Rachel Zucker. I don't want to suggest that the length of my shows is indicative of my magnitude of interest in a given guest. Obviously, my short hour with Zadie Smith, I wish could have been many more hours. But in this case, the duration of this show, the space we create together to really explore Rachel's poetics and aesthetics and the questions and convictions that animate her work is a direct result of the amount of anticipation I had that we both had about talking together. In the supporter email for this episode, I'll point listeners to the recent panel we did together on the art of the literary podcast interview that was supposed to happen at AWP and that we revived via Zoom thanks to the vision and perseverance of the panel's creator and moderator, Mike Sakasagawa, the host of Keep the Channel Open, where that episode has aired. And I'll point listeners to Rachel's amazing podcast, Commonplace, and where to find more of the immersive audio experiences she has created to accompany her latest poetry collection. If you've been thinking about becoming a supporter of the show, particularly for the bonus audio archive, this would be a great time to jump aboard as Rachel adds a reading from her upcoming book of lectures called The Poetics of Wrongness to the archive. For those interested in the Tin House Early Readers subscription, where you can get 12 Tin House books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, keep an eye on that reward tier as a spot or two should open up in the next month. And you'll notice other changes at Patreon, including what we are offering as the Tin House featured new release for the spring, The Last Summer of Ada Bloom by Martine Murray. All of this and more can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for my conversation with Rachel Zucker. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself 
They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet Rachel Zucker, a graduate of Yale in psychology and child development and of the Iowa Writers' Workshop in Poetry. Zucker teaches poetry at New York University and is the author of 10 books, including her memoir, Mothers, her National Book Critics Circle Award finalist, Museum of Accidents, and her collection of prose and poetry, The Pedestrians. She's also the co-editor with Ariel Greenberg of two anthologies, Women Poets on Mentorship, Efforts, and Affections, and starting today, 100 Poems for Obama's First 100 Days. Greenberg and Zucker are also co-writers of Home Birth, a Poemic, a nonfiction book about birth, friendship, and feminism. Zucker has also been a birth activist, a doula, and a childbirth educator, Her awards include the Salt Hill Poetry Award, judged by C.D. Wright, the Barrow Street Poetry Prize, the Center for Book Arts Award, and a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship. And her poetry has appeared everywhere from Fence to American Poetry Review and Pleiades, and has been reprinted multiple times in Best American Poetry. Rachel Zucker is also the founder and host of one of my favorite podcasts, Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People, where she has interviewed Sharon Olds, Alice Notley, Rita Dove, Bernadette Mayer, and many others. Rachel Zucker is here today to talk about her latest book, Sound Machine, from Wavebooks, and its companion immersive audio experience, also called Sound Machine. Publishers Weekly says in its starred review, artfully layered, these pieces defy genre and interrogate the role of wife, mother, and artist as fixed identities. Zucker renders even the simplest inquiries resonant and profound in this restless and thoughtful book. The Jewish Book Council adds, when Rachel Zucker quotes the Yiddish saying, one should weigh words, not count them, she captures the essence of Sound Machine's ambitious project. These extended prose poems and meditations bravely create room for the heretical, confessional, and experimental. Sound Machine embodies critic Rachel Blau Duplessis' call for a radical poetics that draws on this Jewish structure of feeling, this Jewish sense of textuality involved with endless writing, multiple commentary and vectors, endless deferral. Finally, Morgan Levine for the Columbia Review says, in her elegiac poem, Rough Waters, Rachel Zucker asks, what story is this? What animal am I? These two questions and all that they carry, ideas of form, displacement, incongruity, language, and instinct run throughout Sound Machine, Zucker's collection of genre-bending poems. Whether speaking about motherhood, grief, or poetry, Zucker's unrelenting eye and wittily critical voice peel back these experiences to reveal insights that are both deeply human 
and uncompromisingly analytic. Poetry for Zucker is a way of paying attention, an attention that extends beyond the actual facts of life. It's an attention that mandates discomfort, an attention that admits to finding her sons boring at times or to shopping for sex toys in Ann Carson's office. Welcome to Between the Covers, Rachel Zucker. Thank you, David. (laughs) So this is like a long-anticipated moment for me. Um, I've been waiting to have this conversation with you, both because I know we're both long-term listeners of each other's shows and supporters of each other's shows, and so there's just the interest in having that encounter with you, but also there's a meta element to it in that sense because we're both podcasters and listeners to each other podcasting, which makes the show sort of appealingly self-conscious. But mm-hmm. um, one of the things that I think makes the this encounter both really um, ironic and inviting for me is that we both have an ethos of, of doing interviews in person. We both want or believe that something happens when we're in the room with the person um, giving the interview or having the conversation. And this is because of this, it's very welcome to me to have my first remote interview with you, um, to have the sort of inaugural pandemic season uh, between the covers be with you specifically. And um, before we start talking about Sound Machine, I guess maybe to ground us in place, can you just tell us where you are and and what situation you are found in while we're having this conversation. Yes. Um, there really is a lot of anticipation um, for this. I'm speaking to you from this little uh, room off the side of the second floor of my house in Scarborough, Maine. Um, I've owned this house for about three or four years and have been coming to this part of Maine for over 10 years. And, uh, but this is the first time that I've been here at this time of year. Normally I live in New York city, um, when I'm not traveling or, or over the summer when I'm here and I try to come up a few other times a year, um, either by myself or with my family. And, uh, there is something so incredibly bizarre and wonderful about this entire setup, um, that feels like almost overwhelming. Like when you were giving the introduction, I almost started to cry. I think for a lot of reasons, one, I've been looking forward to being on between the covers for a really, really long time. And I think that there's a certain generosity to between the covers and, and the way that you, um, prepare for talking with your guests. And I love listening. Um, I'm very, I'm, I'm sometimes quite jealous of your show or, and, or your conversations with guests. Um, but I'm always, uh, kind of jealous of the guest you have receiving that introduction. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think I've really thought about that for a very long time and wanted to be that person. And I wanted to be physically in the studio with you. Um, I mean, we've, I don't think we've ever, have we met in person? No, I mean, that's one of the sadnesses that 
know we were going to be on a panel together at AWP in San Antonio, and I was excited simply to be in the room with you and to meet you for the first time. Uh, and I'll point people to the the podcast that we've now made of that panel uh, on Keep the Channel Open, Mike Sakasagawa's podcast, and that you're also have on Commonplace, but then you were going to be here in Portland, it, physically at the Lewis and Clark a reading series with Mary Shebist, and we were going to meet each other. But there's this irony, and maybe we can pivot here around, around specifically around Sound Machine, when you say you 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 teared up listening, and I know that in my, um, my two Zoom satyrs that happened in this last week, which I'm thinking like, oh, do I really want to do these rituals through mediated through technology. Um, you know, my hesitancy to do a show mediated through all these tech technological things. But what was interesting during the Seder was several people did cry and I've never been to a Seder where people have cried and, um, people were talk. Some of the people there felt more comfortable, uh, mm. with the dis with the intermediary. Like they felt like they could be, they could disclose more um, which is counterintuitive to me. Uh, so the experience in some ways was more um, revelatory and open. And of course, par part of that's probably because we're all in quarantine also. And so we're starved for connection. Maybe the Zoom Seder on a normal time wouldn't be like that. But one of the things that makes this particularly great to have you as a remote guest is because the book itself is about speaking and recording. Um, mm -hmm. Your book opens with these things. It opens with technology. It opens with questions of, as an artist, of what to record, how to record, and the ethics of listening and recording. So all of that is is, is very timely. We're, we, we puzzled through all these things together around how I could set up a studio because you've sort of grown into being an audiophile and I hope to move myself from being an audiophobe to an audiophile myself. <laughs> but let's start with the title. Let's start with Sound Machine, which I think has a, a million or innumerable different ways you could read it. So what is what are you grasping or reaching towards with that title? I mean, I think that it's meant to have multiple slippery evasive meanings but but there is a title poem in the book and um, the title poem has a lot to do with um, my relationship with my middle son and the experience that I had um, with both my older sons um, many times especially with my middle son in the teenage years of him speaking to me and and saying to me over and over again you're not listening um, and that same phrase um, sort of being levied back and forth between myself and my husband um, in our very long marriage um, and what does it mean to really listen to another person and I think that that listening, um, I mean, anybody who has a Buddhist practice, um, or I, I really would say actually, um, most religions have some element of, of a ritual around 
um, marking time, being present, um, either trying to be more in your body or trying to push your body away and be more in your spirit. If it's a religion in which body and spirit are seen as, um, dichotomous. And I think that like so much of what sound machine wrestles with is, as you say, um, the voice, the recording, but also this, the words here and now, um, and how a person in, in this case myself actually ever is here actually ever experiences now. And I think that's part of what, what made me feel like I was going to cry. Like when you said at the end of the, in, the introduction, you know, now here is Rachel Zucker. I was like, am I, am I here? I mean, I'm here, I'm here in Maine. And yet I have this connection with you. I can see you, um, you know, the technology enables us to, to sort of trick ourselves into, um, being with each other or having the perception that we're with each other. And then later, and I, I hope this doesn't seem too abstract or metaphysical, but I really think this is like at the heart of the existential anxiety in the book, like later, hopefully strangers or people who know us will listen to this and have the experience of being with us, have the experience of, of me almost, and you in a time machine traveling through time to be in a, in a future moment in the present with a listener. And I think that that's something that's, that I find incredibly, um, beautiful and meaningful, but also very frightening. And I think that there are many moments when I am more literally here and now with someone um, in the same room or in physical contact with them where I don't really feel with. And I think that those, um, the gap between uh, it, it's almost a kind of jet lag. Like when you go to another country and, and, and you're there and you're in a different time zone and things feel very unreal, you know, where are you? Are you there? Are you, are you in the here or is part of your spirit, you know, lagged behind or left behind? And I think I have for a lot of reasons, um, my history, my religion, my, um, neurochemistry, my, all of those things, I have a very difficult time, uh, kind of proving to myself that I'm here, that I'm now, and that another person is here and now, and this question of withness and the voice, um, in, in, for me is a very strong, um, piece of evidence that I, that I go to. And I think, you know, I, 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 I've, I've sort of mentioned this detail of mine before, but certainly I think it's a very formative experience that my mother, who was a storyteller, um, I spent a lot of my childhood watching her rehearse to tell stories. I spent a lot of time sitting in the audience and um, listening to her tell stories. Um, and in both of those experiences, she was and also wasn't really available to me as my mother. But there she was, my mother, you know, in close proximity in, in the present. And my mother had a radio show um, called Stories from Many Lands, uh, for for about 10 years on WNYC. And I would often go to the studio with her 
uh, and sit and listen to her record live. Um, and then she traveled a, a, a tremendous amount, sometimes with my father, sometimes on her own. And she would leave with me the reel to reels. Um, and when she was away, I would listen to those, um, to her telling stories. Uh, and, you know, so the, her voice and these stories were both what I had of her presence, but they were also proof of her absence. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, you know, there's that, the, you know, and then of course, like, what does it mean to be a writer? What does it mean to be, um, what, where is the voice in a poem? Is it on the page? Is it in the mind? Is it in the mouth? Is it in the ear? Um, another level of this, um, which kind of leads into, uh, the immersive audio project was I started to feel that these pieces in sound machine and, and some of my pieces before, may, maybe all of them, I don't know, kind of lived more, uh, in the performance, uh, than on the page, but I have very complicated relationship to performance and the idea of performativity as being in conflict with the real, you know, the authentic. And so that's another whole level of like, now we're, we're, we're meta, 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 because are you and I performing these roles of two podcast hosts, but now I'm in the role of guest and you're in the host and, but we just were both guests and we've listened to each other and, you know, and we're going to talk about poetry and, and where is the location of the greatest authenticity of both the voice, the form, the content of these poems, which are true and real and confessional, but what does that even mean? So I think that it was, and then the last thing I'll say for now about the title is I think I'm, like many people, uh, somewhat confused about whether human beings are animals or machines or biological machines or spirits. Um, and I think the idea of a sound machine was this moment, um, of thinking about there, there's a, there's a long piece in sound machine called in the end. And that used to be the last piece in the book in an earlier version of the manuscript. And the last line of that piece is I was made to make a sound and I'm playing both with, I was made to, as in kind of forced to, but also created to, um, um, as if, uh, you know, making a sound is, is at the heart of my reason for being in the world. Mm. Um, but does that make me a person? Does it make me a good person? Does it just make me a sound machine? And what are all of the ways in which we use actual sound machines, not human beings to distract ourselves, um, avoid certain hearing or saying certain things or come closer, be more engaged with other human beings and, um, and, and, and nature and, and our families and, and other people. Well, when you mentioned the, the question of machine, I mean, I definitely feel like you're, you're pointing towards a sound made by a human versus the sound of a bird or the mm -hmm. sound of a volcano that it's something to do with the production of, of language or at least of human sound 
But what's interesting to me when you had Wayne Kostenbaum on to talk about Sound Machine and you two were parsing the various possible meanings of the title and one of them that he came up that you hadn't thought of was, is the machine sound? Is the mm-hmm. machine healthy? But also there's there's the the sounding, the depths. But the one thing that you didn't bring up was the, is the is the level at which it's most uh, obviously introduced in the book, which is the sound machine, uh, literally of masking the sound of your husband snoring, a sound you can't stand, and so yes. that is like on the most um, basic level seems to be the way we first encounter this question of a sound machine. But on a bigger level, it raises the question of, can we listen when we're making a sound? Are we listening when we're making a sound? Is there a violence in in creating sound? Uh, What is the ethics of creating it? Uh, How much space am I taking up at whose expense? Is there erasure? Does that sound right to you that that's one of the... Uh, inquiries of sound machine is this very notion of the creation of sound and the possible damage that it could do? Absolutely. And um, I think, you know, I mentioned to you before that I was writing the pieces in that would become the book Sound Machine at the same time that I was working on this book of lectures, um, which have become essays, which are very explicitly about the ethics of representing real people in in art, um, sort of the legacy of confessional poetry, which is also an ethical consideration and ethical question. Um, and a lot of questions of like, who am I to, to make a sound? Who am I to tell anyone what I think about poetry? Who am I to tell anyone what they should think about poetry? And I think, I think that there's also, um, and when I was, when I was writing those, those lectures, I had decided I was done writing poetry. You know, I was never going to write another poem. And so these, these pieces, which kind of are poems and kind of are lyric essays and kind of are prose and kind of our memoir, um, were sort of, um, sometimes procrastination. Um, also I was trying to develop a set of ethical guidelines or rules for myself about what I could or couldn't say or what I should or shouldn't say. Um, and then I would go ahead and break all of those and, and write these, um, pieces in which I did name people and I did write about my students and I did, you know, sort of breaking each one of these, each one of these rules. There's, there's one other, I think important thing that actually has didn't didn't come to my consciousness until the book was released and i always think that's really interesting that there are things i learn about my own process or my own books like long after i'm done with them um and i think it has to do with simultaneity so you know on a literal level the sound machine as you say is a white noise machine to block out the sound of my husband's snoring there also in that first piece in the book um there's uh, a baby monitor where we're listening um to the sounds uh to, you know to hear when my youngest would wake up um or if he was crying. Um, and then there in his room, there also was a white noise machine at that time, um, to block out the sounds of his brothers who had a very hard time, you know, staying quiet while he was taking a nap. And so, um, 
there were sort of these multiple levels of sound that were going on. And I think that, that um, I have real discomfort with editing out the multiplicity of sound um, or experience or who's there, like in the room. And I think that like that, that I came into poetry with a sense that poetry should be concise. It should be, you know, uh, kind of the, the best words in the best order. Um, and, and it was a real sort of like a model of chiseling away at the stone to reveal the form, the true form. And I, you know, the poets that I love, like Bernadette May or Alice Notley, um, just to have two examples, are poets that have are so messy in certain ways and also inclusive. And I think I was looking for a way to create a poetry that was readable, um, but that included my thoughts, um, the sound of my own thoughts, what I was hearing in the the rooms, the actual rooms of my life in terms of the people who were speaking, um, my doubts, my worries, the buses outside. Um, you know, I think the, these pieces are very New York, um, like New York is in these pieces in terms of the population density, in terms of the, you know, there, it's never quiet there. Um, and you just learn to kind of filter out um, an incredible number of sounds um, and, and to focus on one thing. But there's, there's some way in which I think the act of focusing on one thing feels uh, incredibly violent to me. Yeah. And I was looking for a way to include all this, this stuff that's not really supposed to be in poetry. Well, I'm not sure if you may have already answered this, but when we open the book and we see the dedication, which is for you, that unspecified you, for you, thank you for listening. And then later in the book, you you write a variety of things on the board for your students to consider. And one of them is, who are you writing for? Uh, and I know the for you, thank you for listening, both seems to have a double, it seems like you're, re- you're talking to your readership and to your listenership at the same time as a podcast host and as a poet. But who are you writing for is, is, do you have, is that, is that even a question you ask yourself as a writer when you're writing? Is there a real or an imagined audience when you're writing? It's definitely a question I ask myself. It's not a question I, I know exactly how to answer. Like (laughs) I feel like all the questions in my life. Um, but I think that, that again, a lot, a lot of my, um, kind of ideas about my own poems and about poetry come out of disagreeing with, uh, either my understanding or my misunderstanding of what my teachers and their teachers kind of, uh, valued as as true poetry or good poetry and so one of them was you know that that you shouldn't write for an audience um that there that you that to do so was a kind of pandering or a kind of manipulation or um almost like close to advertising and that true poetry was timeless and um you know kind of not for anyone Um, or if it was, it was, you know, for Helen of Troy or something like, you know, some, some muse or some, some model, um, but not a real person. And I think that there's something, um, in all of these, 
kind of declarations about what poetry should be that that is bound up in the history of whiteness and white supremacy and um you know in a real kind of oppressive oppressive power structures and i think you know, if you just think about like the difference between acting and storytelling or the difference between mostly the difference between white churches and black churches um, or the difference between um, storytelling traditions in indigenous cultures, um, there is not that there is a participation. There's an awareness um, of the audience as present um, that I think is, is uh, you know, it's very different from, let's say, classical music from a European background in which, you know, the, the classical musicians don't acknowledge the audience except in the very beginning and at the end. And so I think all of those things uh, uh, sort of like um, theoretically are very important to me in saying that I really do think about my audience. But then I think that there's something much more personal um, about the ways in which I think about the audience. And in the, in the long piece, um, called it has come to my attention. There's a moment where I'm talking to my son and, um, I'm sort of talking to him and I'm, and he is the he, but he's also the you in the poem at that moment. And, um, I'm switching back and forth between first person and third person. And, um, I try to step, I try to make him in, I try to refer to him in third person. And there's something so terrifying to me about doing that in that moment. I need for him to be the you in that poem, in that moment, in order to, in my mind, keep him safe, keep him alive, keep him real, keep my maternal attention focused solely on him. Um, and, and, and it also in that moment, I try to explain to him that, you know, f over the course of my whole writing career, people have suggested in one way or another, like, well, just, you know, write it for yourself and put it in the drawer and look at it later and, you know, or write something that, you know, you're never going to publish and you're never going to show anyone. And I've always like really um, bridled at that. And at that moment in the poem, I'm really kind of considering whether my life, uh, depends upon knowing that I will show my writing to an audience or the idea that there is an audience, that somebody is listening to me. And I think, you know, if you want to talk to my therapist about this, this comes from, uh, kind of an early lack of feeling seen or heard or acknowledged um, from my mother in particular, and to some extent my father. But I think that whatever it is in, in my own history or my own temperament, the idea of writing for an audience and, and, and when sometimes it is a very specific person, the you is a very specific person, but in this case, I think it is in different pieces, a very specific person and also a general you and not only general, but it's not general. That's not the right word. A specific unknown you, mm. the idea that there would, I mean, right now, again, this is like part of what made me so emotional hearing your introduction because the idea that you who I've never met before have read my work um, so carefully and so deeply in some ways is I think an 
for me anyway, an act of intimacy and an act of love that is in certain ways deeper than the daily intimacy um, and, and proximity and love of a, a long marriage or of a child um, and parent. And, and so I think that that's what I was trying to reach for, like that this idea that, that whoever is uh, looking at this book at this moment, someone I don't know, maybe, um, that that person is, is actually incredibly precious to me. I love that. Thank you. Um, I, I want to take what a lot of what we've been saying, this question of, of being present, the here and the now, um, and then allowing for other voices, which, um, may or not may or may not be related to being present and and take us into the opening of you as a mother in the dark room at the beginning of sound machine with a child who needs reassurance and you struggling to be present or struggling against the desire for escape or to be distracted by something else and later in the book as you reference the actual uh poem sound machine where your son accuses you of not listening or at least not listening in a way where he feels meaningfully heard um recording scenes like this do, don't feel like they're new to your work they they feel like a through line for me from book to book similarly to when you say like and there's a taboo question there's a issue of taboo also in this like that you're the way you would say like um my introduction might have an intimacy that's more than a long-term marriage. Uh, I'm sure there are people who are, like, who are pausing at that and going, oh my God. And the, similarly <laughs> that you would choose to portray the scene of you really wanting to leave the room at the very moment your child would last want you to leave the room is, is, is part of that. Um, but it feels like what I would like to do in this conversation is unpack your poetics which you've both called the poetics of motherhood and a poetic poetics of wrongness, both of which we see here. But I, <laughs> I kind of want to start with the poetics of, of motherhood, which I feel like you've already talked about, but not calling it that yet. Um, at, at one point in this first piece, Songs of the Dark Room, you phone a poet who has four children, but also has eight novels, two books of poetry and a full-time job. And you ask her how to be present to making art when also being a mother. And it made me think of my conversation with Jenny Ophel, who created this term art monster that has entered the lexicon. And it, when we had our discussion, she talks about how she's watching the movie Rivers and Tides with Andy Goldsworthy. And he's in front of the camera and he's delivering this super captivating monologue about his process and his his uh, poetics and his meanwhile his his wife and child are milling around in the background unacknowledged and and silent um and she took away from that with admiration his ability to be impervious to be hermetically sealed within one one's own passions and thought processes and that this was often something that was afforded quite a bit more often to men and that her characters and that her characters, which are mothers are more porous and that her language 
and the way she portrays thought is also more porous. And I wondered if this is somehow this, if, if this porousness is somehow something related to the poetics of motherhood for you with, because we open with you willingly or unwillingly in a moment where you're being pulled in multiple directions. And instead of you choosing to craft the moment to foreground one of those, you show us all of those. Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, I could respond to this for the rest of my life. Um, I mean, I, I want to, I want to say, you know, one of the problems that I have in trying to talk about the poetics of motherhood as I conceptualize it is I don't want to essentialize gender. Um, I don't want to, um, uh, I don't want to essentialize motherhood. I'm not, I don't believe that I'm talking only about an experience that women have. I don't believe that I'm talking about experience that only biological mothers have. Um, and not all mothers have this, and some fathers have this, and some parents have this, and some people who um, have never been parents are um, incredibly porous, incredibly um, permeable, like, and many poets. Um, that That's also a quality that I think, you know, is... is I have poets are so sensitive, you know, and uh, and part of what that means is about being vulnerable, being being open, being hurt easily by other people, being distracted, being you know, there there are poets who have like a razor uh, focus and and are very clueless about social cues. That is also true, but I think that um, what I when I the reason to call what I'm describing a poetics of motherhood is that I do believe that there are certain experiences for most parents and really especially for most mothers um, that cause a kind of crisis of self in which the self becomes fragmented, in which the boundaries become um, somewhat indistinguishable. Again, there are other kinds of crises that can lead to the same kind of experience on a physical and spiritual level, like extreme illness or um, uh, uh, grief, um, abandonment. I mean, there's all kinds of things. You don't have to be a mother to, in a way, you certainly don't have to be a mother to be in the position of caretaking, of having a radical responsibility for someone else. I guess what I'm saying is I don't know how to have a radical responsibility for another to ha to be in the role of caretaker and not have your poetics and your mind uh, radically changed mm -hmm. by that. Um, and, you know, I think of Tilly Olson and I think of, um, I think of Toy Derricotte and I think of, um, you know, uh, as opposed in a way, in some ways, and this might get me in trouble, to Virginia Woolf, who who uh, wanted a room of her own. You know, what what it, what you know, motherhood is really precludes in certain ways a room of your own. It doesn't mean you can't find one. It doesn't mean you can't go in there for a certain period of time. But in my experience, as a mother, um, and I don't know if I would have been this way if I had not had children. There is no room of my own. Even if I'm in a room in a faraway city, you know, uh, nobody is bothering me. I mean, it's never 
true that no one knows where I am, but imagine that that sci-fi world in which I went away and no one knew where I was for a period of time. I My kids are still in the room with me. I'm still worried about them. I'm still distractible. I'm still interrupted. And I, and I will say that I do think that our technology makes us all mothers in some ways because we are so interruptible. Um, and I think that that's uh, very problematic and very humanizing in certain ways. And I think, um, you know, this experience of the pandemic also uh, makes us all mothers in the way that I'm that I'm trying to describe. Um, but I'm, I'm sort of losing the thread of my own response. You were asking me about the poetics of motherhood. Where, where am I going, David? Help me. Well, what, what <laughs> you just said made me think of um, your conversation at the Adroit Journal, where Donna Voyer suggested this term, crafted stream of consciousness, to describe your work, and also Allen Ginsberg. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I, I think you have a connection with Allen Ginsberg, like that you, you like Allen Ginsberg's poetry, and you share this um, maximalist tendency uh, and uh, verb- verbosity, but you you wanted to push against. You didn't reject crafted stream of consciousness, but you wanted to sort of push against this uh, shared notion with him, in the and in a way that felt like I mean, at least in this case, felt perhaps had to do with gender in in contemporary America, in the sense that you felt like his work was could be prophetic and monumental and uh in a way it feels like for it to achieve that perhaps it is a work that isn't that is more impervious to other things so it is um it's not interrupted and it isn't foregrounding interruption it's foregrounding this delivery in a way so i don't know if i'm saying that right but I'm curious if that sparks anything for you when you when you look at the ways you and Allen Ginsberg overlap and diverge. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love Allen Ginsberg so much, and I love um, the disobedience that he has in his work um, that I also associate very much with Alice Notley, but very differently. Um, but yes, absolutely. His work is very monumental. Um, there's also some not that hidden um, misogyny in his work. Um, and it's very, I mean, I, I, I can't help but think that part of why his work and my work are so different, even though they feel very connected in some ways, is that he never had children. Um, and he never really this is not to say that he never cared for anyone or deeply loved anyone, but he was able to, you know, take drugs and, you know, follow his bliss or follow his visions. And I, I really can't very much. Um, I also think that there's something important to say, which is that, you know, my own experience of motherhood, um, is very much through the filter of heterosexuality. And I think that, um, 
motherhood, queer motherhood is importantly different um, from heterosexual motherhood because there's always this other person, um, in my experience, and also a monogamous um, two-person rather than polyamorous um, relationship. Like I think all these things matter and inform um, what I'm trying to describe. Um, you know, so, and then of course the actual temperament and personality of my particular husband, um, who is a feminist, who is, uh, very supportive, who is very open, who's very liberal, who had, um, an enormous amount of day-to-day contact with our kids and care of our kids. And to some extent it was, uh, it's been an egalitarian marriage, but in other ways, it absolutely has not. He is a teacher. He goes to school. He compartmentalizes, whether that's because of his gender or because of his temperament, I can't fully say. But what I know is that I never let go of, there is some part of me that it always knows where my kids are, always knows is always thinking about them. And it's not just my kids. I think that being a mother has, has led me to a kind of vulnerability, permeability, porousness, susceptibility, openness that is, maybe I had this before, I don't know, but I certainly have it now. And I feel that way about my friends and I feel that way about my loved ones. And I feel that way about uh, you know, stories that I hear of strangers very far away who are suffering and there's nothing I can do for them, but they are still present for me. I do not feel able, um, to shut the world out the way I see that he can shut the world out, even our own children, even me for sure. I'm like, he's quite good at shutting me out. Um, and so I think that's part of what I'm talking about. So, so Allen Ginsberg is having these ecstatic experiences and these visions and he's like getting in touch with his body and he's, you know, he's, uh, but I mean, I feel so attracted to that. And I feel that, that there's something in me that, 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 that speaks to, but I'm also feel so, uh, contained by my domestic responsibilities. I mean, I'm always in the fucking apartment, Yeah. you know, like every, every, like, do I ever go outside in the poems? Hardly ever. Um, well, let's hear, so I don't know. Let's hear a a poem. Uh, I was hoping we could hear there are two magics. Great. Oh, I am briefly outside in that one. Are you really? I think so. I think it starts outside. There are two magics he said, describing the fantasy novel he was reading as they walked the drizzled streets. She was listening and laughing and realized she'd been walking through one city or another next to this man for more than 20 years. Longer, of course, than their kids were old, their smart-alecky sons who hadn't yet met the person with whom they might walk through rain, discussing ridiculous books with great sincerity and pleasure. Seriously, he said, I can't stop reading it. But when they went upstairs to the good bed in the good hotel, he did stop reading and found the place where her shoulder met her neck and touched it, until her mind finally went away for a while, and they became bedraggled. He went out like a light, 
but not even the good bed at the good hotel after good sex could put her to sleep. Not the meditation app or the long online essay about the white supremacy of conceptual poetry. She missed her dead mother and her middle-aged cousin, who'd died the summer before. She wondered whether, miles away, her youngest was whimpering, her oldest awake texting, her middle son worrying. She wanted the husband to tell her the plot again, but didn't want to wake him. He lay over the covers on his back, his breath audible and regular, folded hands rising and falling, peaceful and fearless, as if she'd never once meant him harm, as if she'd always loved this warm animal, as if this were not the same summer she'd said, if that's really how you feel, this isn't going to last. And he hadn't said anything. Anger, sadness, doubt, and disappointment was a wave that slapped them down and under. So many people had died, and life felt shorter than how long they'd been together. They had, through so many omissions and commissions, hurt and been hurt. It was that same summer, but she was alive and awake. He was asleep and alive. They were weak, but they were still there. We're talking today to Rachel Zucker about her latest poetry collection from Wave Books, Sound Machine. So I wanted to circle back briefly to the opening scenes of Sound Machine in the dark room, and then later your son, who says you aren't listening, and then to bring in your mother again, who you've already referenced. Because in a way, she's more of a sound machine than the sound machines that are in the rest of the book. And, and you, you reference this that we also learn in your memoir, Mothers, that she was literally on the radio. And when you went there, you needed, obviously, if you're going to be in the studio, you needed to be quiet. So she was a sound machine that was erasing her daughter in those moments. And, and also, as you mentioned, when you, when she'd go out on tour, she'd give you these, these reel-to-reel tapes of her radio show. And you say in Mothers, I'm listening really to the sound of her absence. Her voice is the sound of her absence. And, and you, you wrote about your fraught relationship with your mother while she was alive. And I feel like what happens because of this is one of the principal ways your poetics of motherhood and your poetics of wrongness meet. So before we proceed, I'm hoping we could talk a little bit or you could talk a little bit about your mother in relationship to the publication of your memoir, Mothers, and her desire for it not to be published. Because I feel like from there we can go into some of the questions you raise in the Poetics of Wrongness, which is your upcoming lecture series, which you uh, graciously allowed me to read in preparation for today also. Yeah, so where how to tell the shortest version of this. Um, I started writing Mothers, uh, or what would become Mothers, in because I was invited to 
speak, I was invited to a poetry reading, to give a poetry reading and speak about a mentor. And I had written a book, uh, I had, I had co-edited with Ariel Greenberg, this book about mentorship in which we did not include our own essays. Um, but it was women born in the 1960s and seventies writing about a living woman poet, um, who had in some ways mentored or influenced them. The idea being that, um, my generation of women poets had teachers and mentors um, who were women, but the generations before us, they really didn't. Um, and so we wanted to sort of record and investigate female mentorship. So when I, I started to write this essay and I was trying to think like, well, who would I write about? Um, it, who is my female mentor? What? And I thought about Alice Notley and I thought about Sharon Olds and I thought about Brenda Hillman and I thought about Adrian Rich and I thought about... Um, I mean, I'm forgetting some very important people. I, I even thought about Wayne Kostenbaum as a mother. I thought about James Schuyler as a mother, David Trinidad as a mother. Um, and so I started writing and it just sort of became this longer and longer prose piece. And I'd not really published a book of prose before that or written one. I actually had written a book of prose um, that had never been published and still hasn't been. Um, but I, so I was writing this and I was including a lot of quotes, um, from different, um, uh, female poets who were very important to me. And it sort of became about motherhood, um, about mentorship, but also very specifically why I felt I had spent my whole life looking for a mother when my mother was alive. And, you know, what was that in our relationship that was not, that I didn't feel like I'd gotten what I needed? Why was that? Was it because of my mother? Was it because of me? Was it because she was an artist? Because, and she chose um, being a storyteller and being a writer sort of over being a mother. And, you know, when I was growing up, I really had this fantasy that I was going to have four sons, that I was going to um, not work, that I was going to stay home and, you know, cook and do all the things my mother didn't do. I was going to be the opposite of my mother in every single way. And that was like really how I defined my own identity. And of course, when I became a mother, that is not what I did. Um, I kept writing and I kept working and I kept teaching and I certainly was home a, a lot. Um, I certainly, um, have been an extremely hands-on mother and a very, very, very different mother from, um, the way I feel my mother was with me. But I, I started to recognize a whole lot of feelings that I think gave me insight into what my mother may have felt. Um, and I think the primary, kind of wound that I felt as a child was the feeling that my mother didn't really want to be there, that her mind was elsewhere, that her imagination was elsewhere. And that certainly um, was something I experienced as a mother, um, where I would physically be there with my kids, but there were many times where I felt I was not as present as I imagined I would be, or as I wanted to be, or even being pregnant, which I had looked forward to you know, so much and idealized, like I just felt sick all the time. It was not what I thought. And, um, yeah, as you said earlier, like I, having a baby is so boring and, and hard and exhausting sometimes. And, and children are awful. I mean, my, my children are awful 
sometimes, like really awful. Um, I mean, if anyone treated me the way my children treated me, I would go to like a shelter or something. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I wrote this book and, and I didn't even know it was a book and I just kept writing it and writing it and writing it. And, and the other piece of it that's really important is that I had been telling my students for years, write about the thing you're most afraid to write. Um, and I had thought like, oh, well, I've written about how boring children are and I've written about my marriage and I've written about sex and I've written about, you know, so I've really been doing this, but I knew I was like, you know what, the thing that I'm most afraid to write about is my mother. Um, and I'd also experienced two deaths of women who were very important to me, who had been sort of like mother figures to me, Peggy Sradnick and Alana Stein, one who was the head of the daycare center my children went to and really taught me a lot about mothering. Um, and my doula instructor, Alana Stein, who also taught me a lot about care and, and support. Um, and both of them had died. And, um, and so part of the book is about like, why have I been looking for a mother my whole life? What kind of mother have I become? Surprisingly, can I forgive myself for this kind of mother that I am? You know, why do I feel so, um, separate from my mother? Um, you know, and angry with her and abandoned by her when she didn't abuse me and she didn't abandon me. And she, I really think she did the best she could. Um, in any case, I, uh, was writing this and, and I eventually, uh, uh, got, ended up having a publisher for it. Um, Julie Carr at Counterpath. And, um, when I realized that the book was going to be published, I knew, and I'd been thinking about this the whole time and talking about this in therapy nonstop, like, oh my God, what's going to happen when my mother sees this book, what's going to happen, what's going to happen. Um, and, uh, I finally let her read it when I was in Paris, um, teaching in, um, for a few weeks in uh, the summer, a few years ago and in, in the summer of 2012. And she initially was, uh, very supportive of the fact that I was writing and writing even about motherhood, but, but very quickly she became very, very, very upset. She did not want me to publish the book. Um, she felt that the book was inaccurate, poorly written, um, uh, that it, that I shouldn't reveal what I was revealing about myself. Um, and that I definitely should not expose her in the way that, that, that the book did. Um, and we then, uh, I agreed to a series of weekly meetings where we went over her concerns about the book, um, from, uh, September, October, November, uh, in my apartment in New York. And, uh, they, they were some of the really most devastating conversations that I had with her. And meanwhile, I was reaching out to other writers that I really respected, um, who had written memoirs, um, Nick Flynn, uh, Megan O'Rourke, um, Sharon Olds, um, to ask them like, how did you know it was okay to write these things? Darren Strauss was someone I, I spoke to as well. You know, um, what were the risks? What were you most afraid of? Did it come true? Um, and then my mother went to Taiwan where she was, uh, working on, uh, monkey King. She was working on translating and retelling journey to the West. And, um, uh, I went and I interviewed Sharon Olds. This was before I had Commonplace. And, um, 
you, you might think of it as a proto interview for commonplace, but I, I went to interview her, um, about, uh, Stag's leap. Um, and in preparation for this interview, I reread every single one of her books, um, mm. like very carefully. And, uh, I just also was like filled with what I suddenly saw as these cautionary tales in her work, um, that, that, that she had written with a lot of openness about her family in ways that were deeply inspiring and, and important to me and to many other people. But it seemed like she was saying in Stag's Leap to some extent, yeah, my husband didn't really like it. And this was part of what led to our breakup. Um, so I was thinking about all those things. I went to interview her. I, I basically did a terrible interview. I basically just said, should I publish this book? And Sharon would not tell me the answer to that. Um, I came home and a few days later, I sent my mother an email that said, I am going to publish this book. Um, she had said to me, if you publish this book, terrible things will happen to you, to me and to your children. And I said in the email, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I'm willing to make the changes that you want me to make. If I don't publish this, I'm never going to be able to publish anything else. This really is my story to tell. I don't think I'm being cruel. Um, and I think we're going to, you know, get through this. And she um, got my email and sent an email to several of her friends and her assistant and basically said, like, you know, Rachel is breaking my heart. I, I, I can't believe she's the kind of person who would do this. And I'm, you know, I'm so upset. And then um, not long after, a few, within hours, she started to have chest pain and um, uh, called the equivalent of 911, was taken to the hospital and had an aortic dissection, um, which is a, a tear in the aorta and um, was prepped for, uh, a valve open heart surgery, a valve replacement. Um, and, um, her aorta ruptured as she was going into this, um, uh, surgery on the way to the hospital, she called her therapist, uh, and told her therapist to call her brother and tell him what was happening and, and told the therapist to call me and tell me not to publish the book. So those mm. were effectively her last words to me. Um, and she did not live, uh, she lived through the surgery, but she never regained consciousness. Um, so, you know, I had already had many experiences in my life in which I was unsure about the ethics, um, of saying certain things in poems or in writing, uh, revealing personal information, naming people, um, people, some people didn't like it. Um, but boy, this was a whole other level of, uh, trauma. I mean, it really was trauma. And I did feel for a long time that I had killed her. Um, and that writing the, in this, in this, uh, confessional way, um, could kill someone. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, understandably, it's unbelievably horrifying and it's sort of the worst fear that anyone would have about writing, and it, where it affects another person, the way they're being portrayed. I want to, I want to take that experience and look at the poetics of wrongness. Um, you did publish Mothers, and you you end it with a letter that she wrote you about her concerns about the book. Uh, and in your upcoming upcoming lecture, 
in your upcoming collection of lectures, you go about setting up rules that you mentioned earlier. Um, and then you list out these rules, but then you say that when you start writing again, you quickly find yourself breaking the rules. And similarly, in Sound Machine, you have this incredible long poem called Confessional, where you omit the names of the people being referred to in the poem. So instead of the names of the people, you have these underscored blanks in their place. But when we get to the end of the poem, at the very end, you give us many of these names in sort of a last moment of needing to, it feels like. So you're, in a way, you're sort of reenacting this this um, impulse and this trauma. And I guess I wanted you to talk to us about all of this, about the poetics of wrongness in the light of all of this, but also more specifically about your relationship to rules and what responsibility you feel you have or don't have when you're making your poems. Because you're obviously grappling with these questions and then there are these sort of fundamental areas it feels like where you're, I wouldn't say you're not willing to compromise, but it feels like to compromise might call into question the very act of art making. So uh, talk to us about the rules and then the rule breaking uh, post mothers and post this sort of, if it was in a novel would be unbelievable true thing that happened to you around your mother? I mean, I think that the only way I can talk about it post-mothers is to talk about it pre-mothers first, um, just for a few minutes. Um, so, you know, I um, grew up in the West Village, um, but I went to yeshiva um, from first grade to eighth grade, a very religious Jewish school called Ramaz, and where I was just really wrong in every way. Um, I just, I wasn't, I didn't live in the right place. My parents were much less religious than anyone around me. My mother worked, then my parents got divorced. I was literally the only kid in my class at that time with a divorced parents and a mother who worked. Um, my, also my mother was like really, uh, she would not submit to rules in a way that I very much admire. Um, and, and even at the time, like really was both sort of embarrassed by, um, like she just was not a, ever a mainstream person, you know, just dressed how she wanted to dress and, um, said what she wanted to say. And, um, so I was really an outcast, um, in school, uh, and very lonely. I didn't have any friends and I, I was a smart kid, but who did not learn Hebrew and half the day was in Hebrew. And, um, like I said, at, at, we weren't observant at home. And, um, so, uh, I was always breaking the rules and I was always getting in trouble and I was always feeling wrong and I was always feeling stupid and, um, I had terrible handwriting. I, I, it was very hard for me to learn to read. Um, I, I couldn't spell, I still am a terrible speller. And so I was told that I was a bad writer, um, because that's what writing was, was spelling and, and, um, and handwriting. And when I got to fifth grade, I had this fantastic teacher who, who had us do poems for the first time, my English teacher, Larry Sandemir. And, um, I, he told us, and I have come to, you know, realize this is not the full truth that like, 
you know, no one can tell you that your poem is bad or wrong because it's poetry. So it's subjective. And so I really came to poetry as the place where no one could tell me that I was wrong. And, and not only that, where poetry was about breaking the rules, like, you know, about breaking the margins of the page about, you know, you don't want to, you want to spell something the way you want to spell it, go for it. That just makes it a better poem. Um, it doesn't make any sense. Awesome. This must be a great poem. Um, you know, of course, I, I now feel like poetry in some ways has many, many, many more rules um, than uh, prose um, and other kinds of writing. Um, but at that, I think for a long time, I, I really associated poetry with breaking the rules, with activism, with anti-authoritarianism, with, um, you know, not being controlled, with being able to just, you know, you decide if the, you know, what's poetry and what's not poetry. No one else can do that. You know, Allen Ginsberg was a hero of mine. Adrian Rich was a hero of mine. Poetry was the language of protest. It was the language of like, you know, um, <sighs> wrongness in the sense of, again, disobedience and not normalness, not mainstreamness, you know. Um, and so, you know, I, when I wrote this, uh, this the title piece, um, the title essay or lecture, The Poetics of Wrongness, uh, what had happened at that moment. So my mother had already died. I had agreed to write these lectures, but I hadn't written them yet. And, um, then my mother died and I was like, Oh my God, how am I gonna, I'm never writing anything again because I've lost my right to write poems because I killed someone and I've, you know, to write anything personal, I'm not going to write anything personal ever, ever, ever again. Um, it's too dangerous. Um, it's too selfish. It's, 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 it's off the table, but I had been paid to write these lectures and I really wanted to write these lectures. And so I started writing these lectures and I wrote a whole lecture about, um, the history of photography because I, I had, uh, studied as a photographer in addition to psychology as an undergraduate at Yale. And then I wrote, and I was very interested in the way that I'd been influenced by photography and photographers more than poets and, um, by literature. Um, and then I wrote a whole essay, uh, a lecture about the history of confessional poetry, Sexton and Plath primarily, and also Robert Lowell. Um, uh, but I, you know, uh, and, and so I was like, ah, look at this. I have written these lectures as I have been paid to do. Um, <laughs> and then I realized, oh my God, both of these lectures are clearly a justification to my mother. Um, it's not explicit, but they clearly are like, look, mom, here were these confessional poets who wrote in this style and we don't think of them as horrible person people, although we kind of do. We definitely think of Sexton and Plath as terrible mothers, um, and Lowell was a terrible father and a terrible husband. Um, but we don't think of their poems as terrible. We think of them as liberating. We think of them as, you know, um, revealing the truth of humanity and and the complexity. And and look at this history of photography. Um, these are, you know, if you if you want to look at street photography, or if you want to think about um, Sally Mann's photography, she is a really important photographer to me who took photographs of her children, sometimes naked, and, you know, and, and uh, got into a lot of trouble for doing that. But but to me, this was like, 
the most intimate moving art. Um, and so clearly I was saying, look, I did, I'm not the first person to invent writing about, you know, somebody, um, this is what art is. Um, and so then I thought, okay, look, I'm going to keep writing the same lecture over and over and over again, unless I write it. So I wrote a third lecture that was literally about everything I'd ever written that had hurt anyone. And I gave all three lectures to the series editor and he read all of them. And I had a, a writing retreat scheduled that I was just going to revise uh, based on his feedback. And then I'm, I was so thrilled. I was supposed to write three lectures. I wrote three lectures. Fantastic. He said, these are not lectures. One of them is too informational. One of them is too long. One of them is uh, just not, it's too personal. It's just not a lecture at all. You know what? I think, you know, you've done a lot of thinking and I'm really interested in, you know, your thoughts, but I think you should start over and don't cut and paste. Don't try to save these, just start over. Um, this was a devastating revelation to me that instead of three almost finished lectures, I had nothing. Um, it was a very hard time for me personally. Um, my kids were struggling. There was a lot going on. Um, I had set this time aside. And so I started to write the, what became called the poetics of wrongness. It was originally called F U and then the name <laughs> of the editor, uh, and th then it had title. colon yeah. every goddamn thing I know about poetry. Um, so it was called that. And it basically was, you know, started in my old style of anti-authoritarian teenaged angst of like, you want to tell me that these lectures are wrong? Well, you know what? The only thing I know about poetry is that it has to do with wrongness and that that's what poets are. That's what poets do. They engage with wrongness. That's what the form is doing. And it's really a misunderstanding, in my opinion, of like everything, um, you know, that, uh, that poetry is about to make it right, to make it perfect, to make it beautiful, to make it good, to make it all these things, you know, that really it's in the brokenness and in the deformity and in the difference and in the failure, um, that, that poetry really lives. Um, and that in, and, and that I understand both myself and, and poetry, but even though I believe very strongly in the poetics of wrongness as a kind of manifesto, I also was stuck with this all this uh, other truth, which was, do I think it's okay to kill people? No, I do not. Um, you know, is it okay to be wrong in certain ways? No, it is not. Do I do? Am I okay with with hurting my children? No. So then, the rest of the book, I sort of have to go back and and figure out for myself, like, well, what are the limits? You know, what are what are the limits to wrongness or what are the consequences of, of wrongness that I am not willing to abide, even if it makes you a great artist? Well, let me, um, can I ask you about yeah. that? Because sure. you, you do look at these other poets who use their personal lives uh, as part of their poetry uh, and you have different responses to them. And I'm thinking of Sharon Olds and Robert Lowell specifically where both are, taboo breakers 
uh, and both are folding in their personal lives in ways that maybe you would feel some resonance with or not, but you find Olds's approach more liberating and something off about the way Lowell is going about it, which suggests that that investigation maybe is partly you figuring out, well, where are your limits? Where, and, and why do I have this response? And I was wondering if maybe you could talk about both of those poets from your own perspective and your own thoughts. Are they, is it a gen, is it a question of gender? Is it a question of the poetics of motherhood or is it just really, does it dwell on the specifics of the very uh, taboos that each of them do or the very trusts that each of them may or may not have violated? Okay, that's a super complex question and, 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 and complicated for me also because I know Sharon Olds and um, I feel like I have a really good sense of her personal generosity. Of course, I don't know what it's like to be her child, although I actually did go to high school and college with one of her children. Oh, wow. So that's also a strange thing to have seen her from the distance in the role of mother, um, you know, and to have a little bit of insight um, into her as a mother. I mean, look, I... <sighs> Lowell is a kind of an easy target for me. Um, and I, I think that that's both fair and unfair um, for me. I think it's interesting. I, none of this made it into the book, but I read a lot of Snodgrass, um, who I think is a very underread poet. And um, his uh, long um, poem, I think, I believe it's called Heart's Needle. Um, I haven't thought about it for a while, but. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of debate about like where confessional poetry started or what really makes something confessional. And you know, Lowell was the first one who was called a confessional uh, poet in, in in with that phraseology from M. L. Rosenthal. But um, Heart's Needle uh, by Snodgrass came out before Life Studies by Lowell. And a lot of what Heart's Needle is about is he got divorced from his wife and because of that was separated from his child who he would see sometimes and not at other times. And I, I, I find those poems to be both deeply confessional and very radical. That's a very interesting early um, example of a man writing about the intense heartbreak of being separated from his child. And um, hardly anyone reads Snodgrass anymore. But it's a, you know, when Lowell says, I'm frizzled, stale, and small, when he kind of uh, admits to or describes the ways in which he has been emasculated, the way in which he's psychologically broken, um, that is that is a radical act, and that is deeply vulnerable and deeply exposing of himself and and when he writes about um, others. But I do sense a lot of cruelty and a lot of thoughtlessness in the way that he writes, particularly about his wives. Um, but you know, and and I think that I, I'm not the only one. I mean, his friends Elizabeth Bishop and um, Adrian Rich, um, but especially Bishop was 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 very upset about the way Lowell wrote about other people. Um, so I think it's, I think gender is 
is a small part of it. I also think that we can't overlook, I don't want to make it all about this, but um, Lowell's uh, mental illness, um, I th- and, and the way in which, um, specifically bipolar, um, disorder shaped his experience and the, his relationships with other people, um, is quite different from Sharon Olds's experience of having, um, been neurotypical, at least to the extent that, you know, she was not, um, diagnosed with a mental illness the way Lowell was, um, in an intact family for her kid's entire childhood. Um, very, very, very present, um, with her children. I mean, I, you know, there's, there's also this question coming back to whether your poetry, uh, or writing or being an artist makes you more present or less present. And I feel in Sharon's poems that she, and I think it, the same is true for me, that her poet mind allowed her to pay more attention to her children and to be in certain ways more present, even if she was writing a poem in her mind from time to time, even if she at certain times went into another room or while they were napping, wrote things down. Yeah, okay, she had another life, but she wasn't... Um, you know, she had a self that was not entirely involved in, in, in being a mother. Um, but, you know, Anne Sexton and Robert Lowell, when they write about their children, they're often writing about their absences from their children. Um, they're often writing about, um, you know, acknowledging that they were really not able to be good parents. Um, and in fact, were, you know, in Ann Sexton's case, a, a pretty terrible mother. Um, uh, and she's trying to work through that in her poems. Um, Sharon Olds is talking about how painful and difficult and impossible it is to be a perfect mother, but I don't, she's not really talking, she's not trying to either justify or vilify herself for, very serious wrongdoing towards her children. Yeah. Well, I want to read this quote by Adrian Rich that you quote in, in Poetics of Rognes about Robert Lowell, just because it's such a great quote. Um, what does one say about a poet who, having left his wife and daughter for another marriage, then titles a book with their names and goes on to appropriate his ex-wife's letters written under the stress and pain of desertion into a book of poems nominally addressed to the new wife. I think this bullshit eloquence a poor excuse for a cruel and shallow book. I felt like um, I really love this section of the, the lectures as you find your own limits through others. And then also when you're parsing things like Sharon Olds's spectrum of loyalty and betrayal, which you both find appealing and, and not entirely working for you specifically at the same time. So you sort of unpack her spectrum of loyalty and betrayal and ask questions about it for her own, for her own way of, of solving this issue. But instead of talking about that specifically, I was hoping maybe we could hear the excerpt of a, of a Sharon Olds poem that you include in the Poetics of Rognes called Satan Says, and then follow that with a poem of yours, Five Months Later, I Finally Have Something to Say. 
So Sharon Olds writes, I am trying to write my way out of the closed box, redolent of cedar. Satan comes to me in the locked box and says, I'll get you out. Say, my father is a shit. I say, my father is a shit. And Satan laughs and says, it's opening. Say your mother is a pimp. My mother is a pimp. Something opens and breaks when I say that. My spine uncurls in the cedar box like the pink back of the ballerina pin with a ruby eye resting beside me on satin in the cedar box. Say shit. Say death. Say fuck the father, Satan says down my ear. The pain of the locked past buzzes in the child's box on her bureau under the terrible round pond eye etched around with roses where self-loathing gazed at sorrow. Shit. Death. Fuck the father. Something opens. Satan says, don't you feel a lot better? Light seems to break on the delicate Edelweiss pen carved in two colors of wood. I love him too, you know, I say to Satan, dark in the locked box. I love them, but I'm trying to say what happened to us in the lost past. Um, and so here's my piece. Um, five months later, I finally have something to say. Five months later, I finally have something to say to the poet who canceled on me when I invited you to visit my class, but your mother was ill, and you had to fly to that city to see her, so we rescheduled, and then you came to my class and my students loved you. I emailed you several times since, asking, were you all right, by which I meant, was your mom okay, and I think you said yes, but I don't remember. You seem okay. You're here now, aren't you? about to give a lecture on color. Some of those same students are here. You probably don't remember them, but they loved you. They loved you because you write funny poems and have now written lectures. I am afraid to write either. But I'm here too, aren't I? Maybe I'm all right. Maybe there are other reasons they love you. I saw you the semester after you visited my class at a welcome party at the place we both work, my mother had recently. And I could not stand up, but was. I could not teach, but had to. I did stand up. I was teaching. I was sure you knew what had happened, but you didn't say anything about it. I didn't say anything about it because I could not talk. Sometimes I had to say to myself, the way you know you are breathing is that you are thinking, and if you weren't breathing, you wouldn't be thinking. Mostly, I had nothing to say to myself or anyone. How are you? I said at the welcome party. There were grilled shrimp, but I wasn't eating them. What I meant was, I will never be myself, I am destroyed. I don't remember what you said. I felt invisible. Or you had no idea that my mother... I was inside what my mother had done, said, and what had happened, and no one could seem to. When I asked you how you were, you said you were terribly... adjective. 
I can't remember which adjective because I was inside what my mother had done said and what had happened. I was not myself. My dog is sick, you said. Nothing is more terrible than a sick pet. I remember you said that, those words. Nothing is more terrible. I remember you teared up. I think I am not making this up, but I was not really there. I was inside something else, something that seemed more terrible. I wasn't sure, though, because I was not sure of anything and because I have never loved animals. So I thought, perhaps I am not fully human. I remember thinking perhaps I lack some necessary understanding of life, some necessary understanding of what in life is most terrible. That moment, the moment I did not care very much about your sick dog and I found your face affronting and the excitement of the students to see you destroying was one of myriad, that's not the right word, bad feeling moments I had at that time. That time when I felt I was looking up through the bottom of a glass-bottom boat at life, when I was looking at anything, when I even remembered the word for life, which was not often. I didn't have the word myriad then. I call them bad-feeling moments, but that's not right at all. I didn't have words for anything then, or the words I had were wrong. I was so, so, so debilitated aphased, downed, taken away. I was can't stand up. I was can't read, can't think, can't look at, can't be alone, just time to time movies. Maybe if I ever loved animals, I thought, or ever had a dog I loved, I would have had some comfort at that time, which is still, if I am honest, this time. Even though I do stand up, read, think, am alone, and sometimes words. Part of that thick glass was jealousy. My students love you. Readers love you. And I, my mother had not. It was a time and is a time. I was not loved was the color of is the only way I can explain it. Today you're here to talk about color and poetry. I came to hear you. It is the day before the third big memorial, which is the last, I hope, public performance of my grief. And I needed to go away from making the slideshow of my mother, young and old, on a loop, the loop which is everywhere and anywhere, and I cannot get away from, there is nowhere. Yesterday, Matt said, this is not grief anymore, but turmoil. Or, he said, torture, or maybe torment. I can't remember. My memory is. My mind and all the words shot through with the loop of her face, old young becoming my face. You are talking about Plath and Stevens, I think, but I am always losing the train of your thinking. You joked just now about how I am sitting in the back by the door. You say I can leave if it goes on too long, but you can go on for as long as you like because I am not listening to you. I am here to stop, please pause the slideshow that is everywhere and always, and I am in the back of the room writing you this note that I will never give you. It is either an apology or a thank you or neither, 
I can't remember. What I have to say is that I didn't care that day about your dog, and I'm sorry, and, or, thank you. This is one of myriad things I should never say to you or anyone. I should never say, I think there might be something more terrible than a sick pet. But that is one of the few things I finally have to say. One of the few things I have finally found words for, the words to say. What I am trying to say is that I finally, after all these months, have something to say, even though I should not say it, something less terrible than the things I have to say to my mother but can't, not because they are the most terrible, which is to say unsayable, but because she died. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm supposed yeah, to... I, I, I was going to say something that I think that I, you reminded me of um, when you asked me to talk about Lowell and, um, and, and, and Sharon Olds, which comes up in, these, in both of these poems. And I think that I, I cannot in any way speak for Sharon Olds, but I do think that one of the things that I kind of question in myself in Sound Machine is whether I feel that because I am a good person, by which I mean I have not left my husband, I have not abandoned my children, I show up for things on time, I'm very responsible, you know, I haven't broken any laws, I'm, you know, I, like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a you know, by, that, by those measures, not just superficially, but I'm a good person. Does that give me permission to be bad in poems, to say whatever I want, to do, you know, in poems, whatever I want to do. And I think that that also, there's a, there are several pieces around that, um, including uh, a question I ask myself in Sound Machine about whether I can only write a poem when I have something mean or bad to say to or about someone else, like whether it's become a kind of fetish. Um, and I sort of, I don't know the answer to that, but I sort of, you know, start considering that. And, you know, many poets have, have sort of thought like, can they write when they're happy, you know, can, or can they only write when they're miserable? Um, and then there's like another whole aspect of this that I think does have to do with being Jewish, um, and has to do with something I've talked about before, but this question of like the difference between, and, and this, I, I do feel that this was a real misunderstanding, um, or a real, that confessional poetry was a real misnomer, um, in the sense that, uh, I, I, I don't, belonged to a religion and wasn't brought up in a religion in which one had to confess one's sins or that saying something was a sin. Um, you could have bad thoughts. You can, I can have bad thoughts and I can say them out loud. Um, and maybe I can write them in a book. And if they're true, it's not libel. Um, and it's, you know, but so I think that that's, uh, a confusing thing to me because I think that, you know, when we use Lowell and Sexton and Plath, um, as examples, like they did bad things, um, to in real life, to real people. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying I've never done anything wrong in my life, in real life to other people, but I, I try very hard. I have a very, very high 
expectation for myself uh, about all kinds of like citizenship and family responsibility. And, you know, I, I always move out of the way if someone's walking towards me on the street, like, you know, to, to even to that level. And I, th I think about it constantly and I'm quite anxious about, you know, am I hurting this person? Am I, am I listening well enough? Am I doing this? Am I doing that? Is doing... So I think that that's also part of, for me, the, uh, not a question I've answered, but, um, the difference between how I see Lowell and how I see old. And then one more thing, I'm sorry, but I think that like there are taboos around things we're not allowed to say um, that are deeply oppressive. Um, and so breaking those taboos feels incredibly important and breaking them on the page and breaking them in language seems radically important, but but I had thought before this experience with my mother, not harmful in the same way that other incredibly important acts of uh, disobedience, like take, for example, John Brown, um, you know, yes, John Brown. Um, but I, I don't know, I think I had in my mind that you're kind of allowed to do anything with language. And, and then when my mother uh, died, I think I really questioned that. And, and, and I'm not sure about the answer now. So my whole yeah. binary between good person in real life, bad person on the page. And I'm not even really a bad person on the page. I just spend all my time talking about how I'm, you know, not a bad person in real life, which is potentially very annoying. Well, it seems like one of the areas where you, you come to maybe a provisional realization is that you don't want to punch down. Yes. So in this regard, the one area that you're looking at more with your own writing is the limitations around how you portray your children, which wouldn't be the same considerations about portraying your husband or portraying your mother. But um, I wanted to follow up on this question around the value to the community of breaking taboos on the page. So the ways in which breaking taboos on the page might have an effect out in the world that is good, even if it's creating discomfort or shock. Because you say this in The Poetics of Wrongness, even though I believe that narcissism is often an accusation used to try to control women, I am no longer interested in writing that is only about the self. I have never been very interested in writing that attempts to exist without self, to write with no self is irresponsible. To write with only self is irrelevant. And on a similar note, one of your five requirements for an ethical quote-unquote say-anything poetry is that it has a purpose, that it ensures the well-being of the community and its inhabitants and to prevent or overthrow tyranny and oppression. So... I was hoping maybe we could talk about that. Um, you do trouble this question of confessional, try to move from outside of the label of confessional for uh, many different reasons. And you come uh, across this term that Foucault discusses, Parisia, mm -hmm. which captures, captures this idea of the responsibility to community. And I was hoping maybe you could talk to us a little bit, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, about Parisia and um, how that might link in to what, is, what would otherwise be a, a, a 
a poetics that is has a lot of yourself in it, but not as not with the self as the end of what you're doing. Um, yeah. So I I'm I I would like to say about Foucault that it was one of the great surprises of my life that I would ever write about Foucault. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and that's kind of all I'd like to say about Foucault. No, um, you know, I, um, I'm having a moment where I am about to say something I shouldn't say, which makes it was just really like very hard for me to not say it, but I don't have to say everything at all times. Do you want to say it? And then we can decide later whether to <laughs> cut it. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I mean, because it doesn't matter. It's like not, it's so not, it's so gossipy and like irrelevant, you know, so that's why it's like totally not that important. But um, the thing I don't want to say is who this person is. But I, what I will say is that when I was writing that lecture, I um, spoke to uh, a philosophy professor um, who teaches ethics. Um, and uh, he was the one who said, wait, you know, there's someone before you who has gone through this rather carefully. And that person is Foucault. And I was like, no, <laughs> I've spent my whole life avoiding reading Foucault. Um, you know, uh, I don't have a PhD for it, so I don't have to read Foucault. Um, and he was like, no, 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 you have to, you know, read this, this piece because it's really so much what you're talking about. And so I did. And it was, you know, it was brilliant and, and incredibly helpful. Um, the philosophy professor is the same guy who who's in um, the poem uh, after the new couples therapist. And that's what I was like, why do I have to tell David that? <laughs> um, anyway, uh, an old, an old lover. Um, so I, I think that let's use the Sharon Olds um, Satan says poem um, as an example of this. Um, so she's locked in this box, right? She's locked in the box of femininity. She's locked in the box of, um, being a child. Um, and she's locked in this music box with this ballerina and Satan says, I'll let you out. All you have to do is, is, say what happened and say these terrible things about your parents. Um, and you know, I, there are people who are not, um, as adoring of Sharon Olds as I am. It's true. They exist. Um, and yet I will say that over the course, um, of my teaching career, I've met a great number of people who I, either because they've come into personal contact with her or more often just with her work, who will say that Sharon Olds is the one who really, um, made them a writer or that her work um, opened something up for them. And often these are not, uh, often these are gay men who feel that something about her openness or her willingness to speak the truth about her body and um, her sexuality and her experience uh, was what helped them, um, come out of the closet or help them write openly about their bodies, uh, their sexuality, their experience, their experience with their parents, their experience with, um, homophobia. So it's interesting to me that, that, um, this breaking 
of a taboo is not just to get women out of the box, for example. Um, and I think that that's, I, I also see a difference there. Um, that's the purpose, you know, that, that there really is a purpose. You know, who, who was it? Was it Muriel Rookheiser who said if a woman was to tell the truth, yes. if one woman was to tell the truth about her life, the, the world would break open. I'm probably slightly misquoting. Um, but I think that that's kind of a sense that I have that, that um, you know, some of these prohibitions around privacy, um, around etiquette, around normalcy, around, um, you know, our social expectations are ineluctably tied to ways of repressing, um, othering, vilifying, pathologizing um, uh, LGBT people, um, women, um, people of color, and that one way of, one very important way of fighting against that oppression and, and dismantling those systems of oppression is to tell the truth about your life, your body, your experience in the world, your lived experience. And that that purpose is, um, one of the most important purposes, um, that, that can be because if, if it, if it has the effect that we want it to have, it will lead to less, uh, oppression. Um, so I think, I think that's really important. And then the, this question of, of punching up or punching down, I think also comes up, um, you know, in, in this, uh, you know, in this, in, in both Satan says and, um, in Lowell's work and Sexton's work. I mean, you know, who, who are, there's a, there's a poem by Sexton that I, that I talk about in the poetics of wrongness, um, that I love so much. And what the heck is it called? Uh, it's the one to John Holmes and, um, she's real. it's, it's, it's a similar poem to Satan says, um, in that she's speaking back to John Holmes, who was a writing teacher who really just spoke so, belittlingly of Sexton and Sexton's mm. poetics and her penchant for writing about herself and her life and her family and her body. Um, and she really talks back to him in this poem. Um, and, and it's very clear from the poem that, that he is, he is like locking her in a box in a big way. And not only that, but then making her feel like a terrible, terrible person, for wanting to get out of the box. Um, in her poem, there's a, there's different imagery. It's a bowl and she's trapped in the bowl of her mind and there's a kitchen table. But so I, I think that that's uh, incredibly important. And Foucault is, is much more political um, in, in his presentation of this idea. But like, yeah, we know, I mean, we know now uh, firsthand, you know, right up front that uh, we need someone to speak truth to power um, and take down Trump. I mean, you know, the history of, of tyrants is that nobody, you know, they, 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 they became tyrants in part because they were never listening to anyone who was disagreeing with them or who's challenging them or pushing back at them. And so in that sense, um, a democracy absolutely depends upon 
the freedom of speech, um, in particular, your ability and your and your responsibility to uh, speak truth to power and to say, you know, this is not right. Um, but you know, that's not the same as saying freedom of speech is that you can just like, you know, shout at a child abusively, um, and make them feel terrible and ashamed. You know, that that's, yeah, it's freedom of speech. You can say whatever you want, but it it, it doesn't qualify. It, it does, it it doesn't have a purpose. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't change. It doesn't protect other citizens. Um, it doesn't protect democracy. Um, you know, and of course this concept comes from, um, ancient Greece and it's super problematic because not everybody could vote and not everybody was considered a person or a citizen. Um, but I'm, I'm sort of transplanting the idea, which I think is a very un-American one in certain ways that we can believe in freedom of speech, but we can also, uh, participate in trying to figure out ethical guidelines for speech um, so that we remember that the purpose of speech is for good. Um, even if it, if, if, even if it disturbs, provokes, uh, upsets that there is, it, it's, it's not just to, it's not just for shock value. It's not just for entertainment. It's not just to hurt people. I think one of the things that's compelling about your work is that it's very particular to yourself, but the ends are not there. Like what you're discussing with the Parisia, ultimately that it's about coming from below and, and aiming above. And you seem very aware on your podcast and in your work about your posi- positionality in relationship to who you're speaking to. And I guess I wanted to bring up this question of, or explore this question with you of Parisia when talking about questions of whiteness, which you raise in your poetry and your podcast and in your lectures. So for one, in the lectures, you you bring up poet Shane McRae, who you reached out to when you were exploring the confessional. And he wondered if a poet could only be considered a confessional poet if they were white, because it sort of presumes that you start in a state of grace and that you've fallen. And if you're a poet of color who might write like a confessional poet, you would never have begun in the state of grace. So you'd just be considered an autobiographical poet. And then the question of whiteness comes up when you gather your pantheon of poets for your poetics of motherhood. Women who write like you with long lines, sort of with a maximalist impulse that was often associated with men who are reclaiming the long line like Alice Notley and Bernadette Mayer from men and repurposing it to their own designs. But you worried and wondered why the non-white poets that would otherwise be considered to be writing about motherhood, but didn't fit into your notion of poetics who were not white, like Audre Lorde or June Jordan or Lucille Clifton, who wrote shorter lines, shorter poems. You wondered if there was some aspect of a poetics of privilege within the poetics of motherhood. So you don't have to talk about these necessarily, these examples, but I like this open question that you have. It's a, it's self-questioning um, as you puzzle through being a poet who is white. Um, the, 
the question of your own poetics when it comes to wrongness and motherhood? Considering that race doesn't actually exist, it's not real, it is just shocking and totally not shocking and un, I, the insidiousness of the power of this false concept um you know i think that it has taken of we're at a very interesting moment right now in history where you know it's such a it's such a interesting term but you know the woke white person um you know and as mira jacob said to me like you know she, she she's very frustrated with that term because like you know, there's no such thing as being woke. You're waking up and you're waking up and you're waking up, you know, but, but I think that the process of trying to wake up, um, and I've, I've really learned a lot from my conversations with the poet Joy Katz, who is writing about whiteness and motherhood in really amazing ways. Um, you know, and so whatever it is in our own lives, um, for white people that makes you realize that you're white, um, and and I've said this before. Um, it's uh, every time I hear myself say it, I feel uncomfortable. But it is true that I did not consider myself white um, until probably graduate school, um, and because I, I considered myself Jewish, and I grew up, you know, I, I, when you when you go to a yeshiva, uh, you there's. at least the yeshiva that I went to, everything was about Jews and non-Jews. And, you know, so I, I, and I, I lived in New York, both my parents were Jewish. Like, you know, I, it wasn't, uh, within my family, very, very strong anti-racism. Um, and that was equated with, um, you know, being against anti-Semitism. Um, but it was not like, oh, we're those white people who are racist. Right. It was like, there are white people, um, good and bad white people, and we're Jewish people. In any case, well, it's also, at, I mean, at, can we pause there for a second? Sure. I'm mean, just curious. Sure. I mean, because, I mean, obviously, in in most ways, we're functionally white in America. Right. Um, with white privilege, white passing, if not just white. Um, yep. But- I think that you're realizing that late in an American context isn't is embarrassing. At least for me, I don't think it's that embarrassing because it's not that wasn't true in Europe. For one, um, Jews were considered a different race. They were considered to have a different smell, and they were considered to have a different size and shape of their skull, and um, they had all sorts of properties about them that were alien. Um, and then also the notion that white nationalists even today don't consider Jews part of that vision. Um, I'm not defending white Jews as not being white. I'm just, I, I think it, there is a complication if, if you have an awareness of Jewish history that, mm-hmm. um, but obviously ultimately it's disrespectful to Jews who aren't white in the United States um, maybe more than anybody to, for white Jews to say they're not white in an American context. And it's also incredibly disrespectful to people of color for me to imagine myself as part of a, uh, oppressed minority in a daily way 
that I don't experience, whereas people of color often do. Um, and I can, you know, I, I mean, I mean, but you, you're right. I mean, I don't think that my, you know, my father was born in, in December of 1940 in Nice and, um, his, uh, my grandmother was waiting for him to be born and then fled um, to uh, the United States, but had to stop in Portugal for three months um, because one of her other kids got sick. They came to the United States. They were rerouted to Cuba. They had to. They were in Cuba for a little while. They came back to the United States. Um, you know, uh, I do not think that in my father's lifetime, until maybe the past twenty years he has felt like a white person. I mean, he, you know, he went to Yale when there were quotas, um, for Jews. Um, it was a, it was a daily experience for him of being visibly markedly, uh, treated differently by people because he was Jewish. That is not my experience. Um, but it is my recent, uh, sort of, uh, intergenerational experience. And certainly my, even my mother's parents who came a generation earlier to the United States than my father on my father's side, absolutely were, uh, treated primarily as Jews, not primarily as, as white people. Um, so it, it, it is very present. Um, but I think that it is, I, you know, also I, you know, my grandparents who I was extremely close to on my father's side and uh, my great aunt, my grandmother's sister, spoke with heavy, heavy accents. They spoke Yiddish to each other, you know, if they didn't want me to understand or French. Um, um, and they did not consider themselves American. I also have not really ever considered myself American, even though I am an American. And to say I've never considered myself an American is offensive uh, when you think about what it means to be an undocumented person in the United States. I have all of the privileges of American citizenship and I have enjoyed them and con and counted on them my entire life. And, you know, absolutely passing privilege, skin color privilege, white privilege. Um, uh, and yet, it is, it is a, a, a meaningful and real part of my experience that I did not, I consider myself to be the child of immigrants, the, the, this, uh, kind of, uh, feeling that the government, uh, could turn on me at any moment. Um, that is the government is not to be trusted. Um, that, um, even if I have an American passport, that it could be taken away from me. I mean, these are things that I feel very deeply, um, and, uh, again, that is not the same as, uh, you know, my life expectancy is, is, right. uh, much higher than a black woman living in New York, you know, of the same, uh, class and, uh, educational background. Um, so that's incredibly fucked up. You know, I know when I go to the hospital, um, to give birth to a baby, I, I'm probably not going to die. Um, and my baby is probably not going to die. If I were of color that I would be much less sure of that. Right. Um, so I think, I think this question, I, I think this question, my sense, you know, without trying to generalize is that 
we are at this moment of in history when if we care about uh, waking up um, to the impact of racism and other kinds of oppression, that we have to consider our own whiteness, we have to consider intersectionality, what, where, what our position is, given all of the details of our gender and our class and our geography and all of those things, and that that is happening like every white person needs to like wake up to the fact that they're white and what that means and how that affects them. Because I think that, that this like, you know, recent notion of, of like the appropriate liberal, um, good, uh, uh, kind of way of thinking about the world is to be colorblind. We know, like that's, a, I would say, the big divide between like my father and myself, his generation. And he's, you know, by by endless conversations with me and especially with my kids, he's come to realize that colorblindness is a total fantasy um, and a harmful one. Um, but I think that that, like, we're in we're in our age, we're really in that shift of saying, you know. I mean, can you imagine saying like, oh, I don't see race. I don't right. Well, that's what I was right? saying at the beginning of the question that I really, I, I love everything you've just said because you're aware of your position. So I think, I feel like, you know, the poetics of motherhood and the things that you're, re you're reclaiming for women or for mothers um, by breaking taboo. And then the flip side of that, you developing a poetics that speaks very, very much to you, and yet you're porous to hearing the ways in which it may be erasing. I guess this could return us to the sound machine. Uh, it, you're porous to the ways your poetics could be a sound machine that's erasing legitimate motherhood poetics that are non-white, that maybe you didn't see them as being a poetics or, of motherhood or your poetics of motherhood because you are white. Right. I mean, I think, I think if there's anything I've learned, it's that every time I think I understand how whiteness is working in a particular situation, I have only begun to see the edge of that, that it is so deeply entrenched in all of our institutions and all, and you know, the way that, that my professors who were white, all of them, literally all of them, um, and most of them were straight, um, uh, how, how whiteness um, affected them and their teachers. And, you know, it, every notion of what we think about, about what makes art good, um, everything we think about, about, you know, who we are and how to live. And, you know, when I think, oh, oh I figured something out, I have to stop and say to myself, over and over and over again, wait a second, am I blind to something or am I not able to see a fuller context of this? I, you know, how can I pull the frame back um, to see the larger picture of how this thought came into being? Like, as you were describing it, I was picturing um, a stage and I was picturing uh, an actor on the stage and the spotlight on the actor. And I was thinking about like, you know, there's so many times where I, I think like, oh, 
that I see it now. And I, and I think that the goal is to like shine more light on it and, 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 and kind of put like sort of darken everything else so that I can see, you know, and I can hear this one thing. Right. But think about, you know, if you turn off the spotlight or if you turn up you know, all the lights in the theater and you see the audience and you see the other actors and you see backstage and then you, you go back even further. How do you include the people who built the theater, who built the theater, who made the props, who, 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 you know, how was it that this person got to be in the center of the stage with the spotlight on them, whatever their story is, whoever they are, that is, you can't untie that from the history of, you know, it's like when, uh, uh, Obama and uh, Michelle lived in the White House and uh, this realization that the White House was built by former slaves, you know, um, in, enslaved people. I mean, the, in, the one of the ways in which white supremacy survives and thrives is that it is very hard to see your own privilege and it's very hard to see outside of your own context, especially for white people. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, I'm, I'm not like, I'm probably performing an act of white fragility right now to say this. Um, it's quite painful, I think, to, um, realize that everything about yourself is tied to the oppression of others, that every one of your successes, that every, every part of, you know, and I, th I think that that's um, also very deeply embedded in what I'm trying to describe in particular about American Jewish uh, whiteness um, at this moment in history, because we're coming out of a, a time when we sort of way overgeneralized that, that everything about us and everything about our identity came out of victimhood. And now I'm coming into over and over and over again, an awareness of how much of my, um, life is tied to the oppression of others. Um, and so that's a, that's a worldview change and that's a self view change and both things can be true. And, um, and you, we have to, you know, this is part of why it's so important to break down all of these binaries, whether they're around gender or around, you know, good and bad or, um, victim oppressor, because the, the truth is almost always that, that, that there are competing multiple truths that, that have to stand next to each other and that we have to take responsibility for. Um, but you know, I, and again, this has to do with wrongness, like, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't really necessarily want to get into this, but, you know, you remember when Eileen Miles said in the New York Times that men should just stop writing? Yeah. Um, I don't know if she said it was for 50 years or something like that. Like, I get what, what they're saying, um, and I have sympathy for that, and yet um, I don't feel that way at all. I want men to keep writing, um, and certainly I feel that there are, wh why does anyone need another book of poetry from a middle-aged white woman about her, like, kids on the Upper West Side of Manhattan? Nobody needs that. It's, a, it's obnoxious. It's offensive. My whole being is wrong. You know, my whole, I'm, I, my, my whole existence 
um, is both a testament to my ancestors and to their survival and uh, absolutely built on the backs of, of others. So, you know, ha, ha, and I think that's, you know, that's part of the, you know, am I a good person? Am I a terrible person? You know what? I'm both. Um, and, and how do I, it, do I even have the right to work through some of those questions in poetry, publish them, ask anyone to buy it, you know, make a podcast, be the host, you know, teach a class, you know, is every living breath of mine at the expense of someone else? To some extent, yes. And yet I do keep going. I plan to continue breathing, like live out my <laughs> offensive life. I'm very happy to hear that. Um, so I wanted to read something else that you wrote in the Poetics of Wrongness when you say that you write against, because this relates, I think, to something you just said about your whole life being wrong, too. You say, I write against. My poetics is a poetics of opposition and provocation that I never outgrew. Against the status quo or the powers that be, writing out of and into wrongness. Here's my current definition of a poet. I am wrong, and you are wrong, and I'm willing to say it. Therefore, I am a poet. And then later, you say, It is the job of poems to undermine, to refute, retort, re-see, disrupt, to tell you nicely or aggressively that you are wrong, that the world is fucked up, that all our modes of understanding and expressing are suspect, that there is nothing and no one above reproach or scrutiny. And I wanted to take that aspiration into questions of form um, because you explicitly say in your book of lectures that you're writing against the notion of what a lecture is. But I also feel like you're doing that with your poetry. You explicitly question whether the poems in Sound Machine are poems within the poems themselves. Uh, you seem to also actively undermine their poemness, and I wonder whether Sound Machine is a collection of poems, um, and and I don't mean that in in a good way or a bad way. But I'm curious if uh, if you could talk to us about writing against in relationship to the impulse to undermine form, and whether the question of whether these are poems or not is is ultimately a relevant one to you. Okay, so I think I have some quote unquote, good reasons that I wanted to undermine, um, the poetic form. And then I have some other reasons that, that feel sort of crass and, um, embarrassing. And of course I will share both of them with you. Um, you know, after I wrote Museum of Accidents and, and that was, the book of mine that, um, kind of like did the best, you know, I was, as you said, I was nominated for a national book critic circle award. Um, I didn't win, but, um, it also, I, I had this experience of having Stephanie Burt write a, a kind of like, a really, uh, dense, long review of the book and the Boston review that, that I like had never felt so seen and, and, um, Stephanie like connected me to these poets who, 
you know, now I talk about as if I'm like in their league, but like I'm not in their league and I never was. And it's just wild that, you know, that that happened to me. Anyway, when I finished that book, I'd always had two books, you know, or more ready at the same time until Museum of Accidents. And when I finished it, I had nothing else. Um, And when it was published, I didn't have anything else. And I felt that the book was very authentic to, you know, the, the poems are long, the lines are long, some of them are all over the page, some of them are much shorter. Um, and they felt like an accurate representation of how the language sounded to me and also disjunctive when it needed to be. Um, and, uh, but I also was sort of sick of it. I was sort of sick of it. Even that seemed like too much lyric beauty. And I really wanted to write prose. I really wanted to be considered a prose writer um, for a lot of weird reasons, including that I didn't like the way, um, especially as a white poet, but as a poet, you know, that it was like this ivory tower elitist thing. And, you know, every time I tried to you know, I don't, I don't consider my poems to be rarefied. I don't consider my use of language to be poetic in that way. You know, it's like when someone gives you a novel to read and a certain kind of person says like, oh, it's, you'll love it. It's so poetic. It usually means it's incredibly annoying to read. <laughs> like, ugh, I just want a novel that's just really great to read, you know? And so I hate that you know, that idea of poetry is like abstract and beautiful and hard to understand. It makes you feel stupid. And I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to write that book. And, you know, you mentioned Jenny Ophel earlier, like I wanted to write that book. Like when that, when her, when her book came out, I, I had so much jealousy. I, 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 I would like read it and stop. It was like, it was like, I wanted to write that. I wanted to write, um, you know, uh, uh, I'm blanking totally like, uh, Myra Kalman. I want it to be Myra Kalman. I want it to be like, um, uh, what is her name? Everyone freaking loves her. Um, I have a lot of jealousy that I'm willing to admit to. Um, the, the woman who writes like the super short fiction, but it's like kind of like memoir, but it's not really. And it's all the men love her and they don't love anyone else. Was she, was she married to Paul Auster? Uh, we're just like playing guessing games now, whatever. Okay. Anyway, um, uh, she writes in prose. She's not a poet. I, I like can't move on from this, but I'm going to <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, um, I wrote, um, two books. One was fables and one became pedestrians. And then eventually fables was swallowed up by pedestrians and wave published it. But fables was absolutely supposed to be pro like, like, uh, either fiction or, you know, memoir. Um, and I felt that I'd been writing memoir really pretty much my whole life. And I had been told, um, over and over again, these aren't poems, even when they looked like poems on the page. And it was not a nice thing I was being told. It wasn't like, oh, you are an experimental poet. It was like, these aren't poems. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they were too narrative, the, you know, too conversational, too chatty, too like a, about banal things too long, you know, all this stuff. 
Anyway, um, I think in part because Wave pretty much only publishes poetry, not entirely, Um, and also because the two books were published together, um, no one had, like, I I feel that it doesn't matter how many books of um, prose I write, I'm always going to be considered a poet. Mm. And it's interesting because I think that when I... um, what I've noticed is that there, within the poetry community, now there are more and more books of prose being written by, you know, real poets. But about 10, 15 years ago, if you were a poet that wrote a book of prose, especially if that book of prose did well, boy, were you like talked about behind your back by other poets. Like poets really don't like that. And I can't really figure out why that is. Is it because it's like they feel abandoned in their marginalized genre of no money? and no readers. I don't know. Um, but I wanted to abandon them. I wanted to, to reach a general audience. I felt like, um, I, 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 on a more individual level, I didn't want, um, my long poems are intimidating, um, to many readers and I didn't want to intimidate those readers. And I had the experience of when somebody would like have to come to one of my readings for course credit or something. Um, they'd come up to me afterwards and say like, Oh, I didn't think I was going to like it, but I really did. So I knew that, that when I read the work out loud, um, or when someone was like forced to read it, they were like, Oh yeah, I like this kind of poetry. This isn't really poetry. This is like, you know, this is just like, you know, this speaks to me in some, in some accessible way. And I really was looking for that. So I think that I've, I've had this, um, like back and forth with myself about how much I need to stay in my lane, how much I'm a poet, why I feel, you know, why I became a poet instead of, um, you know, and and it has to do with a lot of the things we talked about before. Like I do think that because poetry is so marginalized as a genre and so few people read poetry and we have all kinds of weird confusing thoughts about whether poetry is fiction or nonfiction. I do think that that for some people like me who say very personal autobiographical things, um, we tend we sometimes go to poetry because we think that if we say it in a poem, we're allowed to because nobody reads it, you don't make any money. But if you were to say the exact same thing in a memoir, everybody would get very, very upset. Um, or if you said it in prose, people would feel like, well, I know how to read prose, you know, I know how to read sentences. And so that's a that's a sort of like an accompanying yeah. um, struggle that I've had for the past, you know, 15 years of like kind of wanting to be a prose writer, um, and wanting to be read as a prose writer, even if I'm not a prose writer. Well, it it Um, goes against some, I I don't know if it was a theory that I created or something that I read that you no longer, by you that you no longer believe, but I had constructed this idea that because your mom was a storyteller and because your mom was such a big storyteller, a famous storyteller, um, that you were part of your writing against, because you do declare that you're writing against the sentence in some of your early books, like the last clear narrative. You're writing against the sentence and against the narrative and against story. If that was a way to try to become impervious to your mother, to create a territory that she couldn't touch or that was constructed on your own terms, um, because this other territory was so loud, was such a loud sound machine that you'd have this other place. Um, 
am I making that up or is that, or was that you're a, not, you're, you're not making that up at all. Um, and, and that's a, that's a, that's definitely a very big part in mothers. I mean, I think definitely I thought that performance was entirely off limits for me. Um, which is, you know, all these things that I came up with love, like I can't, I can't do that. Cause that's what my mother does. I can't be like this. Cause that's how my mother is. You know, I, I'm a pretty good storyteller. I'm not a good, as good a storyteller, um, as she was, but, um, I'm a good reader of my own work. Um, I like to be in front of an audience. Um, I love to read. And yet I think I was like, uh, performance and performativity are bad. And then on top of that, I think, yes, I had this idea. I mean, you know, all growing up, people would say, oh, well, are you going to grow up to be a writer just like your mother? And I was like, no, I'm not going to be a writer. I'm going to be a poet. As if being a writer and being a poet are two entirely different things. Um, and I thought they were for a long time. And and some people, you know, there are a lot of people who, who are avid readers who will not read poetry. My husband, uh, you know, reading, I would say is his greatest passion in his entire life. He doesn't really like poetry. Um, you know, and, uh, so yeah, I somehow thought like, yeah, if I was a poet, then I was absolutely nothing like my mother whatsoever, which is so nuts. You know, it's like after she died, I had to go through all her stuff and, you know, there's, there were, uh, boxes and boxes of notebooks and galleys. I have all the same stuff. Yeah. No, and I love how <laughs> we get that recognition when you're when you're in the position as a mother who can't do anything right. Uh, and then that connects us to your experience as a child with your mother. And um, also thinking about this question of imperviousness from the beginning of our conversation and porousness that maybe you're trying to or we're trying to become impervious to your mother. Uh, but we see so many ways that it's porous. In- inevitably, and I, one of the wonderful anecdotes you share is around Alice Notley, because you're, you're in mothers, you're looking for poetic mothers, mo- a lineage of poets who can be surrogate mothers, either in, in reality or on the page, and Alice Notley is one of those people for you. And yet she cites as one of her influences, which you didn't know when you sort of chose her as your mother. She cites your mother and one of her stories as a huge influence on her poetry. So in a strange way, you get your mother through Alice Notley. She's always there. My mother is always there. It's just fascinating. You know, all these years, I thought I'd married my father. My husband looks so much like my father in certain certain ways and has a lot of qualities. And yeah, it it took me like uh, 20 years of marriage to realize I'd really just married my mother. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I, you know, and and then there's that question too, which is I think it's taken me an extremely long time. Um, And I still haven't fully uh, accepted this, but, you know, according to other smart people, (laughs) I can write something that is about my own life, that is autobiographical, that is quote unquote true. And it's still the way I see it. Right. 
it's still, it doesn't mean it's a lie and it doesn't mean it's fiction, but it's an entirely different experience than anyone else who was also in the room. So am I ever describing my mother or am I just describing my internalized mother? Am I, you know, I, I don't actually think, you know, and that, and, and something, you know, for me, early on led me to want to believe in in a world in which things were either real and true or unreal and untrue and and the truth you know the the real experience of the universe is is you know whether we're talking about racism or lived experience or ideas or um storytelling or poetry or art like there is no art that is 100% true and real and there and there is no fiction you know that that has nothing to do with the person who created it um, but it has really taken me until my 40s my mid 40s to even begin to understand that 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 that's that that's real well I wonder if is that what you're doing at least partially and we take this idea of writing against when you're are you writing against language or this writing against the stability of selfhood or uh, of truthfulness, the way you're switching pronouns, that you'll refer to yourself as I, and then in another poem, you're in the third person as she or as the mother. So it keeps we keep having you cycle through different positions for yourself within language. And so that forces us as the reader into a different position with you also. Right. I mean, you know, we probably should all go back and read Foucault, but, you know, we don't need to, to know that the language, it's not pure. It's not devoid of all this other stuff. It's not transparent. It's embedded with, uh, you know, any whether I'm using gendered pronouns, whether I'm using first person pronoun, whether I'm using, you know, whether I'm, I, I, I mean, when I say the mother, when I, you know, anything I write in English, it contains the entire history of, you know, colonization and, uh, you know, decimation of indigenous populations, as well as all the ways in which the language itself and it, it, is making it very hard for me to imagine a selfhood that is outside of the selfhood I was taught to imagine and is in, in the language. Like, so, yeah, I mean, to some extent, it, 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 my writing um, and my poetics doesn't look like um, Anne Norbessie Philip, and yet I think that I very much identify with the idea that you, on some level, have to break the language, even as you have to use the language to tell your story. You have to break the story. You have to break all the forms. There is embedded in every word, in every form, in every uh, made object is, you know in a way, a limit, every made object is as much an artifact of the limits of imagination as it is of imagination. And you, we cannot even fully imagine a world because of our political structures, because of our history, because of our language, because of our 
ideas about human bodies and relationships and all of those things. So, you know, we can only exist within that, right? It's like the work of liberation is never done. A, a made object is, is, is also, uh, it, by definition, like exclusionary, like, you know, like I want, I want both to go back to the, the example of the sculptor chiseling away at the stone, right? I want the, I want the original stone, I want the chiseled stone. I want all the pieces of stone that were chiseled off. I want the uh, blood from the person who slipped once and, you know, uh, cut their hand while they were making the art. I want it to take as long to understand to like be in the presence of this sculpture as it took to make it. I want your body to feel the way the sculptor felt somehow. Like I want you to look at it and have your back hurt, but I also want you to have a transcendent experience in which it's just appears to you like as it, as, as, as if, you know, uh, from the divine, I want it to make you think of yourself. I want it to make you see yourself in ways you never thought of before. Like I want all of that, all of it at once. I don't want it one at a time because as soon as you have any order, then you have like uh, the oppression of linear ideas um, and of narrative. Um, but you, but but we are in time and we are limited, you know, in our even in our senses. Um, so I I have to like accept that. You know, and, and then and then the other thing is is I want something that is just short of total anarchy and chaos. Because if if you went if you walked into the room and you had what I just described and it did all of those things to you, it may you may just not even be able to look at it or, or, or perceive it, right? There's, there is something, there is a curatorial, um, aspect to all art that is by definition, like exclusionary and don't look at this, do look at this and look at it in this way. There's a point of view. And, um, as soon as there's a point of view, you, you have ego and, you know, all that stuff. So in, in any case, I, I could, I'm like just going all over the place, just like my picture of art. Um, so, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that I want to keep destroying everything without destroying it so that we have both the art and all the things that the art was made of, if that makes any sense. Yeah. No, and I, 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 maybe we could have... I want you to read some more poems and maybe we can have the listeners hold these questions in their mind that you wrote on the board for your students, (laughs) which maybe like the last one that I brought up is, isn't entire, they're not entirely answerable. Um, But two of the questions that you wrote on the board for your students is, is there one I or multiple? And is there an I outside race, gender, and class? Uh, but the three poems I was hoping you'd read, three short poems, uh, Let the World Unfurl, One Word at a Time, Snapshot, and The Feeling. Okay, I will read those now. I just want to say one other quick thing, um, which is I want to give a, a slightly more concrete example of what I was just talking about, which is 
in in uh, Sound Machine, um, I speak about my um, son's struggle with mental wellness, and um, it it really violates uh, so many of my guidelines that I've set to for myself. As you mentioned earlier, like what is the trespass against my children, who I have more power than in certain ways to write about their stories? Well, two things. First of all. I think that the idea of that prohibition and that taboo is both very important, but also tied to certain kinds of ideas about separateness that I don't know I believe in. So am I really separate from my son? Is he really separate from me? There are certain ideas about masculinity, about relationships between mothers and sons, which are extraordinarily damaging. And, um, to say, oh, I'm not going to write about this topic because it, I, it will violate my son's privacy in some ways is to, uh, reinstate those really problematic ideas. The other thing is that I, I think there are multiple eyes and I hope that I'm writing, I hope it's clear that I'm always writing my version of what happened. Let the world unfurl one word at a time. A mother holds the sky at bay, baby on her back, another on the way. The key to this is the seat of the throne of the thumb of the rule of power. Take my bones, she says, and with your bright light, make me a lady homunculus. Go away, geniuses and strong-armed bullies. Put down your rusted jousts. By lace and smoke and note and thrum, we cry out to one another. Snapshot. The husband and I stand next to each other, not speaking, sometimes speaking. See? Asks the photograph. A closeness or almostness. The photograph is meaningless, except insofar as it is a record of us in a place at a moment that is past. The mind is many words at once, unlike photographs, unlike poems. The poem is this and not that, this word, not that, like walking one foot in front of the other, not like thinking. No one can see me thinking about or about, not the poem, not the photograph. The poem says we and means you, but not you and you, not you. The poem is a bully. The poem is brutal. The poem is the present insofar as it was real, true, possible for one moment. In the snapshot, the husband looks like my father like my father looked a long time ago. In the snapshot, the husband looks like a father. He is a father. My mother has been gone a long time. I look for her. I look like her. All this water, the poem says, gone. I have no eyes for this, I think, when the expanse of beauty is unremitting. The feeling. 
She didn't have a name for it, but had felt it before. She could only breathe if she thought of herself in third person. So she thought of herself in third person whenever possible. For example, she and the husband had been fucking with unusual frequency, as if in training for something. But last night, it took them a long time to get off. That long time was part of the feeling she'd felt before, but couldn't name. She wondered whether thinking of herself as she was making it difficult to be in her body. We've been listening to Rachel Zucker read from Sound Machine from Wave Books. So I wanted to... I wanted to take this notion that you wrote about uh, in your essay that you wrote about Jewish poetics, um, envy of the, of the graven image, I think it's called. Is that right? Yeah. You went way back. Yeah. Well, but I wanted, I wanted to take that notion, you know, Judaism like Islam has a, has that taboo around the image of idol making and an emphasis on the word spoken, sung and written. And think about a series of lines in, in Sound Machine that return us to the problems of turning reality into language. In, in Sound Machine, you say, every metaphor is full of blood diamonds, full of blood. The act of making one thing into other, trees into pulp, into paper, people into image, sound, word, story. So maybe with that in mind, I was hoping we could talk about your companion audio project, also called Sound Machine, and hear what inspires you to take language into this other framing or this other venue, and, and what, if anything, are you trying to free language from, if, if that's part of what you're doing by doing the Sound Machine project? Sure. Um, thank you for asking me about the audio project and also um, for asking me several times about um, Jewishness. Um, it's something that I actually really don't get asked about very often at all. Um, who knows whether the audio project is going to accomplish anything? <laughs> um, but I certainly know... I wanted to teach myself something new. Um, I really love audio. Um, I love listening. I love the intimacy of listening to audio. Um, I love the quality of human voice reading things to me. That's that's something, um, you know, that I've loved for a long time. Not everybody loves that. Um, I wanted a way to kind of demonstrate that simultaneity that I was trying to describe earlier. So it's very hard to do that on the page. I mean, you can do it visually with like text overlapping or drawings and um, text, but I am not a very visual person. Um, I'm, I'm much more oral and I, I wanted to, to, to have it be so that you could hear two things at once. Um, so that was very exciting to me. And I also wanted a, a space to experiment with performance, but, but um, intimate performance. So uh, like a, a way to 
have some of the intimacy and some of the accessibility of a live reading, um, but also being able to listen to it alone whenever you want to, to stop, to turn it off. You know, I feel a lot of guilt and shame when I'm reading in public that maybe people don't like it, but they have to be there or they can't get up and leave the room. Um, and I feel more permission to be performative in this format where, you know, okay, if you don't like it, just turn it off. I'm not, I didn't see you turn it off. Um, so these are like small concerns in certain ways, but they're also, they sort of like all came together. And then I also feel like, um, I just hadn't really seen it done very often. Like I like listening to audiobooks. There are very few audiobooks of poetry. Um, Tommy Pico, who was a guest on Commonplace, um, someone made, uh, collaborated with Tommy and, and made a soundscape of, of his work. And Tommy is a fantastic reader. And, um, and then there, they did put out an audiobook of, uh, Tommy's book IRL, which I, which I had read two or three times on the page and then listened to and had a completely different experience of it. And I was like, wow, I love this. Um, there's a poem that I really love by James Schuyler, um, called him to life that I really don't love reading on the page, but I, I, there's a, a, a good, not great recording of Schuyler reading it. Um, that's on the pen sound, um, website. And I used to listen to it over and over again as I was commuting back and forth to Fordham. So I don't know. I just, I started to think like, wait, why, why isn't there more audio poetry? And I'm very jealous of poets who have other media that they work in. Like Wayne Kostenbaum is, I mean, I mean, he does so many different um, things, but he's a painter and a musician. And um, I got, I, I, it seems like I do most in, of the interesting things I do out of jealousy. Um, but Nick Flynn, I did a reading with Nick Flynn and he came with his band. And I was like, why don't I have a band? I want a band. <laughs> I want to hear your band. You know, Ann Waldman had a band, um, you know, um, <laughs> Who else? I mean, a lot of great poets have bands. Anne Sexton had a band. Joy Harjo. That's right. Um, you know, I love her work. Um, I mean, I love I've I've loved Joy Harjo's work for you know since I was in high school. Um, but I don't know if you've heard her her like sound work, um, but it's also incredible. Um, I have one of her pieces, um, on my liked songs on Spotify and I listen to it almost every night before I go to sleep. Any case, I, I just thought, wow, well, maybe this is kind of like a new genre in a way, because it's not really, it's not slam poetry. It's not performance poetry. It's not, um, uh, you know, it's, it's not just a kind of like straight reading of the book. There are things in the audio versions of the, of the poems from the book that are changed, um, because they kind of have to be changed either because you can express some of the things in sound without having to say them or say those words, or some things you have to clarify because you can't quite get at it in sound. Um, because you know that the experience on the page that someone gets to a certain place and then they're going to go back and read it again, but you can't do that. Um, so I don't know. I was just really interested in seeing how far I could take it. 
um, and seeing if these pieces, which really are not really poems, they're not really memoir, they're not really essays, they're not really lectures, I thought maybe there's something else, they're a form that hasn't, that doesn't really have a name. Um, yeah. So what I'm going to do is, um, it, in lieu of you having a band present in Maine <laughs> with you right now, we're going to play uh, a little excerpt of two very different ones. And so maybe you could start by just introducing We Cannot Make Them Happy, Behave, Passionate, Patient, Safe, Sorry. And then I'll play uh, three or four minutes of that and then have you introduce the next one after that. Awesome. So I wrote that piece actually when I was in Maine in the place that I'm in right now uh, several summers ago. It was a very difficult summer and I was here uh, without my husband but with two of my kids and I was doing a lot of reaching out through email and text and phone to other friends of mine, particularly other mother friends of mine, just kind of, sometimes for advice and sometimes just like, oh my God, this is so hard. And I ended up writing this piece that's, that's quite different from the other pieces in Sound Machine because it's the voices of many mothers, um, a lot of the actual things that they said to me during that time. So when it came time to do to make the audio piece of it, I really wanted to have that feeling of a chorus of mothers present. So first of all, um, this is made and performed by mothers. Um, the sound designer and musician is Alicia Jo Rabins, um, who is an incredible musician and turns out an incredible sound designer. And has been um, on both of our and shows. And a mother um, and uh, a very helpful mother. Um, and um, the, the voices that you hear in the piece are my voice, um, Laurel Snyder, uh, Aridy Matthews, and uh, Erica Meitner. And so I had each of them record um, the piece and I wanted a feeling that I couldn't really achieve on the page of, of interruption, of asynchronous, um, overlapping, um, but also comforting, um, non-narrative, but enough clarity of understanding. And I really do feel like the sound version um, is a tr is truer to the intention of the piece than the, than the text version. We cannot make them we cannot happy, make them behave, happy behave, behave, passionate, passionate patient, patient, safe, sorry. sorry. Here, here we, we say, here, except, except when we, just except a minute, when we, say, just a minute, we say, hold on, we cry, we cry, we are calling, calling, calling anyway, for, calling out for, time, anyway, for have no money, time, book, anyway, mind, have no patience, money, we have lost book, it, mind, patience, we have lost it. Now we parry, we pause, we, we post, menarched, we menarched, menarched, now we parry, we pause, we post, now we meno, huddling in bathrooms, we are texting, not resting. Reading, not reading. We are actually not huddled. We are hiding. Try to we stop are trying, alone, we say. Pretending to Just be alone. as a thought experiment. Take this, we say to each other. We are alone, Try this, sick, we say. Pretending to Try be alone. to stop trying, we say. Take this, Just as a thought we say experiment. to each other. Rename Try the pills, this, we, say. we say. 
With this pill, I withstand the onslaught of testosterone. Just as a thought With this pill, I am able to withstand the sight of my children's suffering. With this rancid sublingual whatever is happening say it in the past tense it is still that that makes it easier still that in aa they say we say whatever is happening we can't remember what we said in labor never wrote it down in aa they say in aa they say we say in labor we said we can't remember what we said in labor never wrote it down we make syllabi four and syllabi four and we say, we I say, cannot afford to go to the crying room all the, the time. Room? I will when pretend I am not always everlastingly in the crying room. We say, remember the years we spent in the crying room? We are still, we are still, we are moving, we are, moving. We are still, we are still moving, moving, but barely. But barely. Moving. We say, we, we make mind mapping and climb in, we make mind farther in, and climb we in. Say, we say, would you like to join me in giving up control for one day, hour, moment, hour, moment? We are still moving, but barely. We pray or we do not pray. We make we dance wildly to the summer's top offering until we see the video and we say, would you like to join me in giving up control for one tiny bit hour moment? We say, no, yeah, I don't know what that means either. It is too loud. There is a buzzing, a humming, a clanging, we a rattling. Quietly, we cannot afford the, the steps pop to the bathroom until in the we see the video at and night. Sit here and when the alarm goes off at 3 a.m., it is not a chirping. It is full on. No one wakes up or everyone wakes no up. No part of we us cannot at all reach wants to be in any real Men arrive hospital. to push the button, leave a grimy mark it on the wall. It is too quiet. Say, it is if too it happens loud. again. There is a buzzing, a there humming, is no a ladder. clanging, a rattling. There is a ladder. Where was it? We there cannot humming, afford hissing, the steps groaning, to the bathroom in the creaky house. There is not night. enough. There is too much. And when the it alarm goes be. off at Never 3 a.m., right. it is not a chirping. It is too it early, is full too late. on. We cannot afford no one the small light of the device. Everyone we wakes cannot up. listen to any louder the than the rain or watch anything darker, lighter the than pitch dark leave at a night mark on for the fear wall of waking anyone. If it happens we know, again, we know, we know, we know. Believe us, we know. We know. Turns out you can. Turns talk out you can like talk to us like that. Turns out you do all the there things is a humming, we met when we said groaning, we do not act like them who used to be them of us, them who are everything. So now we are nothing. So now we are not husks. We've been listening to Rachel Zucker's audio project, Sound Machine, a companion to her book, Sound Machine, from Wavebooks. Well, before we play the other one, Rachel, um, tell us where people can find these projects, the audio projects, in case they want to uh, listen to them in their entirety. Sure. Um, so right now, they, uh, I think four of them, uh, possibly five, are available for free um, on Bandcamp. Um, but I sort of got stalled. Uh, so if you if you go to Bandcamp and you search my name um, and you search Sound Machine, you'll be able to find them there. Um, eventually, I hope to release them as an album um, when I finish making um, maybe 10 altogether. Uh 
through Spotify and, you know, all the other stuff, almost like, a, um, you know, like an album. Um, and what I really would like is to basically turn Sound Machine into a production studio and create these kinds of immersive audio pieces um, in collaboration with sound designers of other poets' work um, and either release them as a podcast um, that's sort of a cross between um, Song Exploder and... um, you know, the Poetry Foundation, um, or something. And, and, uh, I've applied for a grant. Um, I, I don't tend to win things, um, but who knows? Um, and the one that you just heard, uh, part of, I mean, my fantasy is that that would also one day exist as an installation, um, with, uh, spatial sound and photographs and that you would walk into a relatively small dark room in a gallery or a museum and it would be an immersive audio um, experience that also would have a visual component to it as well Um, but um, that does not yet exist so for now Bandcamp is your best is your best best okay so let's let's go out with one more excerpt and this one is from death project poem uh talk to us about that one and and then we'll play an excerpt from that um so this one was uh the sound design and music original music is by nathaniel wokstein who is my first cousin on my mother's side he is an incredible musician um and he uh has done most of the pieces that i've done so far uh and it's been extremely um, incredible to collaborate with him on these. Uh, and this particular piece is a strange piece. It mostly takes place, uh, with me sitting in my son's bedroom at night, my youngest son, who's asking me some really difficult questions about death and I'm trying to answer them. It's quite painful to, you know, try to acknowledge to him the existence of death um, as he comes into kind of a full existential despair. Um, And then there's this middle section, which is very different in form and tone that is all about Sally Mann, who I mentioned earlier, the photographer Sally Mann, and about her experience um, of taking photographs of her children, and then an experience that she had uh, with a convict who, um, uh, an escaped convict who came onto her land. And the poem also has to do with... um, awareness, not just of individual human death, but of environmental destruction and degradation. Um, and also this, this question that we talked about earlier about realness, um, and whether my only kind of sense of realness is when I'm in this room with my son and, and sort of forcing myself to stay in that difficult moment, um, and be there. Um, we wanted to have like different thematic qualities in the, uh, in the, in the audio rendering. And, um, there is violin, um, which is Nathaniel's primary instrument, um, but not, not his only by any means. And then there's the sound of water that was, um, it was very important to me to have live recordings, not like canned recordings. So there's even, 
um, room tone um, in the actual rooms that um, I wrote these poems or that these poems happened that are um, contained in the audio pieces. I mean, who you, there's no way you would know. Um, and in some of the audio pieces, the actual people in the poems speak their own lines, so to speak. Like you, you'll hear my husband's voice at one point and my kids' voices at one point, or, um, the author that you mentioned earlier, who's written four books, um, uh, who has four kids and, you know, 20 books or so is Juliana Baggett. And, and I recorded her, giving me the actual instructions that she had given me that appear in the poem. Um, so there's also like a kind of cinema verite quality going on, um, uh, in, in these audio pieces that I think is, uh, similar to, I love that you're using the word companion to describe the relationship between these two projects, the book and the audio project. Um, but I think that that like kind of, um, provocative quality of like, is, did he really say that? Um, uh, is exists in the book, and then is, we treat that in a kind of uh, we try to get that same feeling of risk, or um, I guess in some cases trespass by using the the actual voices of of others. Death Project Poem What? You're saying I will cease to exist? Isn't there any way to stop this? This will help. Smaller and smaller, skin looser. The healthy are afraid to mention, afraid to say what is happening. As soon as you think you know what is happening, you do not know. What is happening? It is happening to you, afraid it is happening to you. This will help you. There is nothing surprising except everything you are feeling. The giving way. The way everything is predictable, but never to you exactly. This will help you arrange, hold, stem, reconstruct words into meaningful, predictive, protective. The made, the made way for, the giving way to. Words makes you watch. Words makes you watch. What? Your son says into the dark from bed, you're saying I will cease to exist? Isn't there any way to stop this? Be there, watch, stay, wait into the dark or the dim light, into the whatever light there is. As the breathing changes, yours, the mother's, the father's, the grandmother's, the other grandmother's, the other mother, the machine, stay here. 
You want to go out screaming into the diminished environment, the way we have ruined everything, and the we that wants desperately against everything you know is true to be anything other than I. You need to stay. Stay here. See what is happening to the diminishing giving way, giving away. Words reach. You need words to reach into where there are no words. There are no words. People always say those words. Those words are the words people say. Stay there. Stay. In the unmade, made room, in the still cardiac place, inside the loosening skin, the polar ice caps giving way, the giving way, the world warming, the bodies one by one losing heat inside the giving way. For a brief time, he, she, they, we treated each other as their selves. The polar diminishing animals, the vanishing, we were once hardy with a sense of smell, touch, vision, feeling, taste, future. That's it, right? The belief that there will be something that does not warm or cool. A second more of... We've been listening to Death Project poem from Rachel Zucker's Sound Machine audio project. Rachel? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel, it was a deep honor and pleasure to have you on. Thank Between you the so covers. much, David. I've been looking forward to this and it exceeded my expectations. Hooray! And I hope this doesn't preclude getting to one day sit in a room together in real life. I hope it. I hope it doesn't either. Yeah. So uh, we were talking today with Rachel Zucker, the author of Sound Machine from Wave Books. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Neiman, your host. Today's episode of Between the Covers was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, makeshift home studio of host David Naiman. You can find more of Rachel Zucker's work at rachelzucker.net and at commonpodcast.com and at soundmachineproject.bandcamp.com. Rachel Zucker also adds an extended reading to the bonus audio archive from her upcoming book of lectures, The Poetics of Wrongness. This bonus material joins readings by Laylee Longsoldier, Forrest Gander, John Keane, Ted Chang, Sheila Hetty, Carmen Maria Machado, and many others. You can find out more about how to subscribe to the bonus audio and other rewards available to supporters of Between the Covers at patreon.com slash between the covers. 
I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla and Jeremy Cruz in the art department, Yashwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops, for helping make the podcast run as smoothly as it does. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.